get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on gotodobbs.com today. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast, powered by I Promise. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Yeah, I think we will actually have a good, pretty good idea in the next two to three weeks for a few reasons. Um, the Cardinals typically are pretty um, adamant about shutting down for the holidays. And if you look at when they make a lot of their big moves, it, it tends to be right in that early to mid-December period. Now, maybe if Real Muto signs and Yachty's the next guy, that could be another thing. So I do think in the next two to three weeks, we'll have a good idea on both of these guys. All right, so that was Mark Saxon, what, about a week ago, talking to us about he, when he believes the Cardinals are going to have some sort of answer on Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright. And Ferrario, Saxon had an update yesterday in his write-up on The Athletic. He said, Wainwright said that he hasn't yet solicited formal offers from teams and indicated it could be a while before his agent takes that step. We still don't know whether the Cardinals will offer him a deal. Given this pandemic-imposed payroll crunch, especially in the heartland, the Cardinals might offer just one of their two iconic players a new contract. Depending on where the bidding goes, it could also be possible that both decide to leave. The latest that we know on this is what Adam Wainwright had to say earlier today on Carriker and Smallman. Here's what he had to say about his future in St. Louis. We've heard from a lot of teams, honestly. Um, there's there's a lot of teams calling, and we'll we'll see where it goes. But my time in St. Louis is uh, something I'll cherish always, whether it's the end or it's not. We'll see. Hopefully it's not, but you never can tell, man. Every, every player has an expiration date. So I, I've loved my time in St. Louis, and hopefully it continues. But if it doesn't, I love the people of St. Louis there, the team organization itself. Everybody's been great. Man, when I hear him talk like that, and I read what Mark Saxon wrote yesterday, and I hear what John Mosellock said on KMOX over the weekend where he said that he believes there's going to be some clarity in the near future with both Yachty and Adam Wainwright. It makes me feel like we are starting to lean, starting to head in the direction of at best one of them coming back. And I think if one of them is back next year, I don't think it's going to be Adam Wainwright. You think it's Yachty instead? I think so. I think of the two, the guy that they feel more comfortable bringing back would be Yachty or Molina. Well, here's the thing that I don't understand where Wayno said to the Mark Saxon piece that he hasn't yet solicited offers. So is this basically he's hearing from teams, but he's saying, you know what? I'm not going to decide anytime soon. If that's the case, then that tells me the Cardinals are the top of his list still which I think all of us expect, right? Yachty has said it out front that the Cardinals are the team he wants to be at. Cardinals want him back. 
Wayno's saying that as well. But hearing that quote from this morning, that makes me feel an awful lot like what we just went through with Alex Petrangelo. Only this one, Petra wasn't saying I'll cherish my time in St. Louis forever like he was gone. He was still saying I want to be in St. Louis. Hearing Wayno say, you know, I've cherished everything about this. I'll always cherish this. Hopefully this isn't the end. But he's not soliciting offers yet. John Mozalak wants a resolution sooner rather than later. All of these puzzle pieces are starting to come together saying Adam Wainwright's time with St. Louis is done. And John Mozalak has made that decision already. Do you remember last year around this time? I think it was Adam Schefter who went on Monday Night Football. And he basically said, hey, listen, these are all the breadcrumbs that I'm hearing right now. And he was talking about Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. It's like Tom Brady's house is up for sale right now. His contract was made to void at the end of this upcoming season. There are stories about how he and Bill Belichick aren't exactly seeing eye to eye. You're seeing every week how he's not enjoying playing the game as much anymore. The Patriots more or less are saying publicly we'd be fine with Tom Brady moving on. And Adam Schefter eventually said, All of the breadcrumbs are leading in one direction. They're showing us where this is going. We just don't want to believe it. I think that's what's happening here, much like it did with Alex Petrangelo. The breadcrumbs are very clearly showing us where this trail is leading. It is leading to Adam Wainwright pitching somewhere next year, but very likely not pitching here in St. Louis. And is that going to suck? Yeah, I wish he could spend his entire career here in St. Louis. But we hear it all the time from Randy Carricker in the mornings of it's a very, very short list of Cardinals Hall of Famers that started and finished their careers here in St. Louis. And I think we're going to see something different for Adam Wainwright. I don't expect him to be back because I think the Cardinals feel comfortable with their pitching depth behind him. And I think that they are looking at this of, okay, we can bring back Waino for five, six million dollars, or we can go out and add somebody to the outfield, add somebody to the infield that's going to help our lineup next season, which is clearly the thing that was holding them back a year ago. So as I look at this, it's basically a cost-benefit analysis, and I do understand where John Mozeliak in this front office is going. Well, and also when hearing John Mozeliak, and I listened to the interview that he did on Sunday at KMOX, him talking about how the goal is to update upgraded power. They know that power is the weakest area on this team, and if you're going to spend 5 or $6 million on Adam Wainwright, you can spend that 5 or $6 million if they're going to on that power to upgrade. But the key in all of this, too, is John Mozeliak saying, we're hoping to find out if we're able to bring these guys back. Not if they want to come yep. back, if we're able to bring these guys back. And frankly, that's the financing side of it. You're waiting for this shoe to drop on both angles of this. You're waiting for JT Real Muto and James McCann to sign elsewhere to see what that market's going to look like for Yadi or Molina, right? Like you have to have the evidence to go to the lawyer and say, this is what these guys made. Yadi, you can't go higher than this. And the same could be said for Wayno. You're seeing these pitchers come off the market, BK. $11 million for Drew Smiley, 15 for Charlie Morton, or 12, whatever it was for Charlie Morton. You're waiting for all of these to come off and say, okay, Wayno, here's what you got. Like, you're waiting for the shoes to drop right now. Yeah, and Mike Miner, two years, $18 million in total. You just saw earlier today, Lance Lynn was officially traded. So you're starting to see, as much as we haven't seen any player movement whatsoever on the position player side, we have seen that movement on the pitching side. So this begs the question for Ario, are you comfortable right now? 
with the Cardinals rotation next year if Wayno isn't back? 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. I would love to hear from the listeners on this. Do you feel comfortable with Jack Flaherty and Austin Gomber and KK and Carlos and Miles Michaelis and Ponce? Are you okay with these options going into next year? Because you're very likely going to be going that direction. I don't think they're going to be adding from the outside uh, to be able to improve this ro- rotation. Are you good with that? I'm not. I, I mean, I'm, I'm really not. Like, you have the pieces. If this was a normal offseason and you just played a normal 162-game schedule, I'm fine with this because you got guys who can go out there and eat innings for you. I mean, frankly, I wrote it down. On your 40-man roster, you have 12 players who could be a rotation pitcher for you. So you're you're set up even before you bring up Wainwright's name. Here's my problem, though. Here's my concern, BK. You just played a season of 60 or less games where you limited the amount of innings that Jack Flaherty could pitch. Carlos Martinez barely stayed healthy for you. Miles Michaelis was out the entire season. So the only three guys that really pitched was KK, Gomber, and Ponce de Leon in the rotation for you, like on a regular basis. Yeah. So those are three guys that you know will be okay, but all these other ones, you're going to be limiting the innings. Like you're not going to just pull the leash off of Alex Reyes and say, go ahead. Not going to do that with Jack Flaherty. So you have the pieces, you have the depth, but I don't know if you have the pieces that can pitch 162 game schedule for you. See, I think they do. I think you would go into the season with Flaherty, KK, Michaelis, Gomber, as your top four, and then your fifth spot would be a competition in camp between Woodford, Liberator, Gant, Carlos, and Ponce. And then whoever doesn't get that fifth spot in camp, I think would very likely end up starting anyways. I think you're going to see a lot of those guys, um, Reyes as well. I think you're going to see a lot of those guys throughout the year get piggyback starts, or they'll get a one-off here or there. I don't think you're going to see Jack Flaherty start 30 games, to your point. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're going to see that from anybody in the Cardinals rotation, maybe other than KK because he's on the last year of his deal. And if you, I know this sounds really harsh, but if he throws out his elbow, he throws out his elbow and you move forward if you're the Cardinals. That's how they use pitchers in 2020. But other than KK, I think Flaherty is going to get probably 20 to 25 starts. I think the same is likely true for Michaelis. I think you're going to see something similar for Gomber. And then you're going to see a lot of guys over the course of the season get between five and 10 starts. And they will split their time between the bullpen where they're getting two or three innings. It's kind of a long man and the rotation where they'll give you four or five. And I think if you're a Cardinals fan going into this season, there were very few teams that are better equipped to go with a plan like this than the Cardinals are next year. Yeah, and they definitely don't have to touch the pitching market. Like, I have been very confident on that. Like, there's no reason to go out there and sign a Corey Kluber to your team. If you're going to do that, you bring back an Adam Wainwright. Here's the only thing for me, too. The more you're going to be using these guys and the more innings that you try and say, hey, we need you to go out there and eat some innings, if injuries pop up, which they will in 162-game schedule, you start to diminish that depth and you start to diminish the depth in your bullpen. Like your bullpen was a strong point for you last year, but if you're going to be plucking guys out of it to fill spots in the rotation, because you know, you don't want to give Jack Flaherty that amount of innings or miles Michaelis broke down or somebody somewhere broke down, you're going to start plucking away at your depth. And I really think if that's the strong point, if you're not, if you're not obviously upgrading your power and you're going off of pitching and defense again, you got to really hope that that is locked in. Otherwise, you're going to be in for trouble in a 162-game schedule. I hear you. 
you're right. <laughs> um, everything <laughs> that you just said is true. I just think this team has so many quality pitchers, both in the bullpen and in the rotation going into next year. I feel comfortable with it. I've got a lot of concerns about what the defense is going to be now that they've let go of Colton Wong and the fact that it's becoming a very realistic possibility that Yadier Molina isn't back next year. I've got a lot of questions about what this lineup is going to be next year. Even without Adam Wainwright, I don't have a ton of questions about this rotation. I don't have a lot of questions about the bullpen. I think they're going to be okay there. And so as you look at it with Cabrera, Miller, Gallegos, Webb, Hicks, that's five guys already that I feel pretty good about. Helsley and six guys at the back end of my bullpen. I already mentioned five or six that I feel comfortable with as long guys. And you've got a pretty solid rotation. I understand why the Cardinals would go this route if they decide to do it, even though in terms of the sentimentality of it, it feels a little bit cold and calculated. I do understand at a time when they are pinching for every last penny why they would decide to go this direction. Frankly, I'm amazed you used the words comfortable and Andrew Miller in the same sentence well, after what we saw last year. Listen, he's making $12 million. He's going to be comfortable. <laughs> even, even if I don't love it, he's fine. You're he, comfortable with that like you're comfortable with Matt Carpenter. Uh, I'm more comfortable. Who are you more comfortable with, Miller or Carpenter? Because I would go, really? Yeah. Oh, I'm far more comfortable with Andrew Miller right God, now. <laughs> I, I'm more comfortable with Matt Carpenter in terms of you can't lose me a game with Matt Carpenter. Andrew Miller can blow a game up immediately like we saw last year. It's 11-12, your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Coming up at 11-30, we're going to talk with our guy Jeremy Rutherford. The NHL randomly decided, you know what, actually, players... We're good here. We'll go ahead and just go with the agreement that we previously had. What does this mean for the Blues? When will they officially be able to begin their season? We'll talk that over with Jeremy Rutherford coming up in just about 15 minutes. But coming up next, I read something yesterday from Derek Gould that made me feel once again like the Cardinals are chasing their tail with Tyler O'Neill. I'll tell you what that is coming up on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Tyler O'Neill got 500 at bats. He's a guy that probably hits you 25 home runs with a ton of strikeouts. Um, that's just the way the game is played. So if he got four to 500 at bats, he's going to hit for some power. He's going to have stretches where he's going to get you some doubles and hit you the ball out of the ballpark. And if Lane Thomas, and maybe he comes back into camp and he's the kind of player that we projected him to be, which is a, a steady major league player. Maybe not great, but steady. Um, if it's coming from within, it's got to be from one of those two guys. And that's the way I would look at it. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. That was Danny Mack a couple of weeks ago talking about Tyler O'Neill and Lane Thomas being the two individuals most likely to take this next step for the Cardinals if that internal improvement comes from anybody currently on the roster. I've got a question on Tyler O'Neill. Because I was reading Derek Gould's chat yesterday on the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's website. And somebody asked him about Tyler O'Neill. He said, what the Cardinals don't want to have happen, and they've recently had a reminder of this, is to trade Tyler O'Neill and see another team unlock that power and have another Luke Voigt or Randy Rosarena to watch elsewhere. Again, that was Derek Gould talking about Tyler O'Neill and why the Cardinals want to be able to unlock him here as opposed to seeing that elsewhere. I think this is, and 
We hear this a lot from Anthony Stalter, the gambler's fallacy, where if you keep flipping a coin 100 times and for the first 99 times it lands on heads, it doesn't change the odds of it landing on tails that 100th time. It doesn't make it more likely to be a heads the 100th coin flip. It's always 50-50. And if you hit it 99 times on the same side, well, that was just unbelievably unlikely. It doesn't change the likelihood of the same event happening again on that 100th flip. This is something that I look at the Tyler O'Neill situation and I say to myself, there is zero resemblance between how the Cardinals handled Tyler O'Neill and the way that they approached Randy Rosarena and Luke Voigt. Tyler O'Neill has 171 career games for the Cardinals. He has 450 plate appearances for the Cardinals. That's essentially one full big league season with the Redbirds. Randy Rosarena had 23 plate appearances in 19 games. Luke Voigt had 137 plate appearances in 70 games. Both of them played one season with the big league club here and then were traded and immediately took off whenever they went somewhere else. So when I look at what Tyler O'Neill is and what his potential is now, it is not the same as what it was for Randy Orozarena when they traded him or what it was when Luke Voigt was traded up to New York. If you trade Tyler O'Neill now, it very well may be possible that he unlocks his power potential elsewhere. That is, I guess, in play. But it is no more likely than any of these other guys that we're talking about on the free agent market right now that were non-tendered because they weren't able to have success with their former teams. Tyler O'Neill, I feel like we kind of know what he is now. It is not in the same category to me as Randy Orozarena or Luke Voigt. We know what Tyler O'Neill is, but the Cardinals are still telling themselves that they don't know what Tyler O'Neill is. And... I understand the 171 games, 450 plate appearances, but it has been sporadic. It's been seasons where he's played, he's been injured, he's played like he's never had a consistent season of Tyler O'Neill as an everyday outfielder. But honestly, reading this and hearing this, the Cardinals got the yips when it comes to trading offense. Like they know how to evaluate pitching. And now they are gun shy of trading away offense because of Randy Rosarena and Luke Voigt because we heard John Mozalock take full blame and responsibility for what took place with Randy Rosarena I think they're going off of what Tyler O'Neill has still done in the minor leagues which you really can't discredit I mean this guy was crushing 40 plus home runs in a minor league season he was doing everything that you expect a power bat to be doing in the minors he's just never taken off At the major league level. I agree. We know what Tyler O'Neill is, but in the Cardinals minds, the yips have set in and they're hoping that the minor league Tyler O'Neill can break through. I mean, they're doing the same thing with Harrison Bader, too. But Harrison Bader's shown that he can have success in the big leagues. We we don't have to like it. Technically, Tyler O'Neill has, too. He won a gold glove. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of his offensive production, he hasn't. In his first 60 games, his first season, Tyler O'Neill was really good. He mm-hmm. showed that power that you're talking about. But the big leagues figured him out. They learned how to pitch to him because this is how it works. We've all seen it before. And in year two, he came back and he didn't have the same success. And in year three, he came back and he was terrible last season. He ended up basically all three years, 60 games, 150 plate appearances, all three seasons. He was the same guy all three years except for the production fell off Mm -hmm. every single year. So if I'm looking at who he is as a player, low on base guy, high strikeout guy who was supposed to have that power potential, but major league pitchers learned how to pitch him. 
and he hasn't had that power potential. Meanwhile, with Harrison Bader, there's one thing that I know he does well. He is really, really good against lefties. In his entire career, he's been that. Whether it was in the minors or in the big leagues, he's been a fantastic defender. He's pretty good on the bases. He has really good speed on the bases. And he hits against lefties, especially for power. I can't say any of that for Tyler O'Neill. The defense is solid, and I know he won that gold glove this year, but come on. Right. <laughs> we, we've all watched him. We know what he is. He's, he's a fine defender, but at the plate, that's where his value is supposed to come for you, and it just hasn't been there at any point in his big league career outside of that first season where he showed a little bit of that power potential. I, I just I think it goes back to, again, having the yips like I think the Cardinals are holding on to these assets as close as they can to their chest because one, they're controllable and they're cheap. And two, they're not going to upgrade anywhere else. Like if you think that Tyler O'Neill is going to be playing more than Dylan Carlson, you're sadly mistaken this upcoming season. We all know that Dylan Carlson will be playing almost every single game this upcoming year. But. Tyler O'Neill is going to be a platoon player because they still hope that they can break through with this power bat. And the Air Comfort Service text line 65780 saying Tyler O'Neill is Randall Grichik. Well, yes, that's I true. I would take that. If he but, became Randall Grichik, that'd but be that's a success. What would you take Randall Grichik back on your team right now over Tyler O'Neill? Yeah, because Randall Grichik's proven it. Because he's And he's broken through a little bit, too. Now he's been with Toronto. He's hitting more home runs. He's playing more consistently. That's what the Cardinals are hoping Tyler O'Neill becomes. And well, Randall th- Grichik was better with the Cardinals than Tyler O'Neill has been. Yeah, but I think people still treated Randall Grichik when he was with the Cardinals like they're treating Tyler O'Neill. Being done with him, he strikes out. All he does is hit home runs. Why are we playing this guy when you have so-and-so in the minors ready to come up? He's basically been that same dude for the uh, Blue Jays, for what it's worth. Like when, when he was here in St. Louis, he hit between 20 and 25 homers and 25 to 30 doubles. And that's the exact same guy that he's been since he got to Toronto. So if you didn't like him here in St. Louis, it's basically distance made the heart grow fonder because he's the same player. You're just looking at the numbers now instead of watching it on a night in night out. And he's doing something that Tyler O'Neill's not doing right now for you. He's not hitting home runs on a nightly basis like Randall Gritchick is doing. But I do think that John Mozeliak and company right now, because of what has happened with a Rosarena and Luke Foyt, and frankly, there are other names out there, too, that have been missteps in terms of trading offensive talent away. Right now, I feel like because this is the transition year that nobody is labeling a transition year, (laughs) it's hold on to everything you have as close as you can that's cheap and cost effective so that next year you can make your decision on if these guys are even worth it. So it's an interesting way to look at it. And that basically means you're looking at an outfield for the upcoming season. That includes Tyler O'Neill, Lane Thomas, Justin Williams, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> he, he's, he's out of options, so the Cardinals would either have to place him on waivers if they didn't have him on the big league roster or have him on the big league roster going into the season. And then the outfield that we're expecting to see on opening day, Fowler, Bader, Carlson. That's six outfielders. Yep. If you don't have a designated hitter next year, it becomes really difficult to envision a scenario where you're adding from the outside to that group. But everything that I've heard publicly and privately about the Cardinals offseason plans is that they plan to add an outfielder. So I don't know how those two things jive. I don't know how you can both say, yeah, we're going to keep all of these guys within. We're going to give them more opportunities while also saying, uh, our plan is to add an outfielder. And right now we're approaching the offseason as if there's not going to be a DH. So what is it? Because those two things don't coincide. They don't go together. Are you giving Tyler O'Neill and Lane Thomas that next opportunity? Or do you feel the urgent need to upgrade that offense from the outside to it within? 
are you going to bring in a Jock Peterson? Are you going to bring in an Eddie Rosario or David Dahl, whoever the guy is that you want to, to be able to upgrade this offense from the outfield? Because you can't do both of those things at the same time. There's only so many plate appearances to be able to go around. And that's where I'm at and why it's so frustrating to continue to hear names like Jock Peterson and all of these outfielders. And frankly, your free agent market this year is outfielders like that's how you upgrade bats there's not many names out there that are third baseman second baseman that can play for you that is an obvious upgrade defensively and offensively there's names but the outfielders are better so if you're bringing in an outfielder you have to be offloading another outfielder and in that interview that we referenced John Mosellak did on KMOX he has talked about how they're trying to find out what the trade market looks like and if there's any assets that you can offset and it's looking at revenue versus payroll so if you're looking at trading assets if you're looking at that trade market and you're bringing in an off an outfielder like a Jack Peterson that they have that they've been tied to well, then you have to pretty much be stating that, you know what, we're done with one of these experiments. But to Derek Gould's point, I don't believe that they are because I believe that they're holding these guys as close as possible so that they don't make another mistake. He's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. There is some more news from Chicago. The White Sox have reportedly agreed to a deal with free agent outfielder Adam Eaton. It is a one-year deal worth $7 million. It also comes with a second-year team option for $8.5 million. So Adam Eaton, basically a two-year, $15.5 million deal to go up to Chicago to play for Tony La Russa. This is really interesting because there is now reports that the White Sox were also in talks with Eddie Rosario and Jock Peterson prior to this agreement with Adam Eaton. The guy that we always mention for the projections for the salaries, right, is Kylie McDaniel. Mm-hmm. Kylie McDaniel projected a one-year $4 million contract for Adam Eaton. So basically the market's not as uh, loose as we thought it was going to be. He ended up getting one-year $7 million <laughs> for his first season. And then if he's good, the team would probably pick up that second-year option for $8.5 million. As much as people have said that this is going to be a really down market, a really bad year for the players, if it was going to be that, it's guys like Adam Eaton who should be feeling that squeeze. It wasn't as much of a non-tender market as people had expected, and it ended up being basically the same as what it's been the last couple of years. And now I'm seeing the deals for the pitchers that we've talked so much about, mm-hmm. and I see this deal from Adam Eaton. Maybe it's a one-off. Maybe it's going to be an outlier, and the White Sox just really wanted Adam Eaton. That's possible. But if this is what the bar is going to be set at for some of the other outfielders, Jock Peterson might have just priced him out of the Cardinals range. Oh, without Eddie question. Rosario might be out of the Cardinals price range now. And now you're going to be looking at from the outside looking in potentially David Dahl is your best option. And he comes with a ton of uncertainty while also having a, at least a little bit of upside, I suppose. Yeah. The only interesting part with the White Sox and Adam Eaton is they needed a right fielder, like an everyday right fielder. So I think it was going to be overpaying for somebody. So to make sure that they get somebody. But if that's the case and that was overpaying for an outfielder, what do you think Jock Peterson's side is asking for? Because I can get not asking for $4 million in a year. Heck no, not after this. They're looking at 8 to $10 million coming off of a World Series championship that he was a part of. So, yeah, I mean, you're looking at David Dahl. You're diving deeper and deeper into that bargain bin right now. Coming up next, the NHL has officially decided, you know what, we want to play hockey after all. We're going to talk to Jeremy Rutherford about what that means for the Blues and a potential scheduling quirk that could make one player even more important to St. Louis. We'll talk about who that is with Jeremy Rutherford coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. 
With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Thrilled to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on the show. Blues insider for 101 ESPN and The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at JP Rutherford. JR, are we actually going to get hockey in about a month from now? <laughs> it sure does look like it. Some more signs pointing to that, guys. Uh, some talks the past couple days, and obviously the, the biggest uh, development is that they've put the financials uh, aside and decided uh, not to touch them. Obviously, after uh, days and days of uh, back and forth on that, they decided, you know what, we'll keep the uh, financials what they are and just start talking about uh, playing during a pandemic. And so it's still going to take some time to iron out all the protocol. They did a great job last time when they went to the bubble. Uh, There won't be a bubble this time, so they have to be a lot more detailed with their approach. And uh, hopefully they can uh, come to conclusion on a lot of this in the next few days, and we'll have an announcement about the start of the 2021. I think we can get rid of 2020 now. We can just talk about the 2021 hockey season around the corner. So, Jared, what was was the point of the last two weeks of these (laughs) back-and-forth between the owners and the NHLPA? Well, I think it was uh, two things. It was uh, salary deferment, and also it was escrow. I think that the owners wanted to revisit that. Uh, word got out. It leaked that uh, that's uh, what the NHL and the owners were interested in. Gary Bettman came out at the seminar and said, no, we don't want to renegotiate, uh, but the, th- uh, the times have changed in terms of, of what we're facing. Uh, you know, it's continued months and months without uh, no fans. And so we just need to adjust some of these numbers. And it's funny, you know, it's not renegotiating, Gary Bettman said. It's kind of like it, you know, and, and uh, I know you got the uh, fiancé now and, and Alex is uh, married and, and myself. It's like when uh, your wife says, uh, hey, uh, why are you arguing so much and, and why are you debating me so much? And you're like, well, I'm not arguing with you, but why can't you do this, this and that? So it's, it's pretty much the same thing, right? Uh, what the league wanted to do in terms of renegotiating and changing some of the economics of the deal. And, and, and I think the past couple of weeks you look at it and, uh, and the players stood their ground and said, no, uh, you know, we will look at changing the, the salary deferment, but we don't want to change the escrow. So I think ultimately the back and forth led to the two sides saying, let's just move on. Well, Jr., you've been married a lot longer than I have, but I know already <laughs> that that doesn't work. So the NHL owners finally just figured out that that was a, uh, a dumb process with all of this. Uh, let me ask exactly. you, let me ask you this, Jr., because uh, uh, Pierre, Pierre Lebrun, your, uh, your, your coworker at the athletic put out there that this still does need two thirds of a vote on the board, board of governor's side. Once they come up with the realignment and everything that goes into this, how likely is that going to be an easy factor? Because we all remember that a lot of the owners weren't happy with even playing a season. So the board of governors kind of holds kind of pretty heavily in all of this conversation. Yeah, they do. And and they do, I believe, have to come up with uh, two thirds to ratify it. And also the PA is going to have to do it. But, you know, I think it's one of those cases where, uh, you know, Gary Bettman and the league, they've done this for so many years and have great relationships with these owners. You know, they know that they have the vote. Uh, before they take it. I mean, in terms of uh, feeling the owners out on on how they feel. And, and so, yeah, are there some owners that are upset that the economics aren't going to change? I'm sure there are because they're dealing like a lot of businesses and pro sports teams with this pandemic and, and uh, no fans in the seats. It's going to be difficult. So it's going to be a challenge. But I think uh, the NHL, if they've elected to move on and feel like they can get a season started with the economics the way they are, I, I bet they feel pretty good about getting 
getting the two-thirds that they need. Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on 101 ESPN. So, JR, earlier today I was reading from ESPN.com, and Greg Wyshynski uh, was talking about what the schedule would potentially look like, and he said the primary objective remains to have all 31 teams playing in their home arenas with a baseball-style homestand of three games between those teams. That's the preference for the majority of owners and the preference of the players as well, and it's the plan that has gotten the most attention in NHL circles. I wanted to ask you about this as it pertains to the Blues, because if you decide to do those basically homestands, the series, if you will, doesn't that place an even greater importance on a backup goaltender and for the Blues, Ville Husso? Yeah, it's definitely going to. And I think whatever they decide uh, to do in terms of do they have four hub cities that aren't quote-unquote bubbles, but say the Blues are flying out to Vegas to play a week's worth of games, or they do what the preference is and what Greg's written about, and that's uh, play these series at home, and and so you play multiple games. I think it's going to put the Blues in a difficult situation in the goaltending position uh, because of that. And, hey, look. We saw the story of Jordan Bennington, uh, you know, lightning probably doesn't strike twice, but perhaps Billy Huso steps in and he's exactly the prospect that everybody's expected him to be for the past couple of years. And then all this talk about the goaltending is moot, but you're talking about a situation where Jordan Bennington, you know, yes, he has experience, but he hasn't played several hundred games in the NHL. And then you have Billy Huso that hasn't played a game. So the blues are going to miss Jake Allen, I think uh, regardless, but yes, if you're talking about playing uh, two and three, three and four, uh, four and six, uh, whatever it is, I think it's going to be a difficult proposition going into the season, not knowing what to expect from Billy Huso. JR, I'm also curious about the uh, the COVID protocols that are going to be going in the negotiations. And right now, this is more just kind of speculation because we don't know what's going on between the NHL and NHLPA. But so much success last year with the bubble and with the rapid testing and, of course, playing in these stadiums, I really am curious if the, what the player's stance on this, the COVID protocol and with the vaccine coming out, is going to be starting the season, playing in stadiums, and doing all of this traveling that's going to take place. Yeah, I think if you don't send them to Edmonton and Toronto and tell them they're going to be there for a couple months, I think they're going to be fine with it. <laughs> I think if you uh, if you promise them some fishing and and wildlife and then don't deliver on it, yeah, they're going to be upset like they were with uh, the bubble. Uh, but no, I think that uh, they've got a a good hand in this negotiation. You know, uh, going back and forth with the owners, and it, like I said, it's going to take a lot of work over the next several days to iron all this out. The one thing, guys that uh, everybody has to come to grips with is the NHL had so much success in the bubble. And we know the reason why it was just sealed, but that's not going to be the situation here, especially if they play in 31 cities. And so you're going to have positive tests. You're going to have games where players are missing. You might have the cancellation of games. I think everything we've seen baseball and football go through, you're now going to see that with the NHL. That's why they're going to build in the extra week after the regular season, before the playoffs, in case they need to make up any games. Uh, But it's a guarantee that uh, you're going to have some issues. And that's why I think uh, setting up for this is a lot more difficult than what they set up for the last time. Jeremy Rutherford of The Athletic joining us here on BK and Ferrario. Jared, the other day you posted your Blues Fan Survey 2.0, and some of the questions that you had asked Blues fans included the likes of Jordan Bennington entering his final season, how do you view his future, what excites Blues fans the most for the 2021 season. In terms of the results that you got back from fans, was there anything in particular that surprised you or stood out to you about how this fan base currently views the St. Louis Blues in 2021? 
Yeah, a couple things. Uh, number one, most notably, would be uh, Justin Falk. Uh, there was a large percentage of fans uh, that that believe that with an expanded role, that he'll be better. And I realize what we've read in comment sections on stories and heard on airwaves. Uh, that's the the vocal minority. You know, I've been dealing with that for 20 plus years as a sports writer. You know, those people are, are just happen to be the loudest. But hey, let's be honest here. Uh, you know, talking to NHL people, talking to, you know, players around the league and, and just uh, talking to people in general. I think the majority uh, didn't uh, believe that, that Justin Falk played very well last year. And he himself said it when I talked to him. So, you know, I don't think that uh, when you when you hear that vocal minority for months and months and months that you can expect to put together a survey and say, hey, do you expect the guy to be better? And all of a sudden you get, you know, 70 percent of people saying uh, that he will be. So that kind of came as a little bit of a shock to me that people really do believe that uh, he'll be better. And then secondly, I think uh, Alex Petrangelo, people were very comfortable with the way that uh, Doug Armstrong dealt with uh, the contract and not meeting the the criteria that that Alex wanted in the deal. And, you know, I think as the thing unfolded and we saw how everything uh, happened, uh, I, I understand why people are okay with it, but if you had told me, you know, two months prior to free agency that Alex Petrangelo is going to leave, he's going to sign with the Vegas Golden Knights, and a majority of Blues fans are going to be okay with it, uh, I think that would have been a big surprise. Jared, the one that really surprised me, and maybe this is because I'm the pre and post game host and I'm a rights holder for the Blues, <laughs> but uh, the fact when you asked about the realigning of the division and where fans felt like the Blues would fall. I was amazed that people, the majority of people, picked them falling somewhere in that three, four, five, six slot rather than the first or second slot. And when you look at that division, I mean, I can understand the case for Colorado and Vegas, but beyond that, I'm amazed that people pick other teams over the Blues. Yeah, and I was glad. You know, you do those polls, and granted, it's twelve hundred people, so you're not talking, you know, ten thousand. But but I think twelve hundred is a is a pretty good sample size. And I just love honesty. Like mm-hmm. you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna do these, let's actually give some legitimate uh, answers. And so are people going on on there and and giving some of their you know Homer ideas? Uh, yeah, sure. But but I think when you look at that question in particular, and, and you ask Blues fans, where do you think you'd fall in this division? You know, they're respectful of other teams, and I think we know what uh, Vegas is built and how how good Colorado's been but Alex you look at the rest of that uh, potential division and that's not that anything's set in stone that's just Pierre Lebrun spitballing mm-hmm. on what the division could look like but you're talking the uh, the Anaheims the LA's the San Jose's a lot of teams that have struggled the past couple of years so uh, I agree with the, the readers on this one that I think the Blues deserve to be in that three to four range final question that I've got for you JR you also asked about Jordan Bennington as I mentioned and how Blues fans view his future and I thought this was also really interesting and a pretty honest response. 78% of the fan base that responded to this poll said they view Jordan Bennington's future as adequate to above average and that he would likely resign with the Blues. Only 19% view him as a franchise goalie who will certainly be resigned. How do you think he goes into this season? Like what needs to happen this year for Jordan Bennington to reach that franchise goalie clear cut has to be resigned. Everybody believes that that is the case for him. Is there, is there anything he can do to reach that status in your mind this year? Yeah, well, I do. I do. I think that, uh, you know, look, you, you saw what he did in the Stanley cup finals and, and throughout the playoffs and that, that, whole second half of the year it was flat out amazing and I don't think there were too many people outside of his mom and dad that thought we were going to see that for the rest of his career but I think that you know last year 30 wins only one of three goalies in the league to have 30 wins but the people who watched every night realized that he needed some help and that without Jake Allen the Blues aren't top of the West 
at the pause. And, and so then you get to the playoffs and, and he wasn't great. So you look at this upcoming season, if we're not talking about Billy Huso and uh, the need for Billy Huso and he needs to be better and the Blues need to go out and find a veteran, then I think Jordan Bennington's probably done what he needs to do. Look, this year is going to be so different with the, the fewer games, possibly 56, condensed schedule. But if, if Jordan Bennington can get through this season and show them that he is a number one goaltender, he doesn't need Jake Allen. I think that he's going to get re-signed. And I think that uh, then he's going to be able to kind of hit the reset and prepare for a full season to take on that role. Look, guys, these past couple half seasons are just difficult, I think, for uh, these guys and particularly the goalies. And I think it's probably going to take until next year for Jordan Bennington to prove that he's that guy. He's Jeremy Rutherford, Blues Insider for 101 ESPN and The Athletic. You can check out that full piece over on The Athletic right now. Give him a follow on Twitter as well, at JP Rutherford. JR, always appreciate the time, man. We look forward to talking with you again next week. Awesome, guys. Thanks a lot. You got it. That's Jeremy Rutherford here on 101 ESPN. I'm fascinated by Jordan Bennington's season. I think for, for me, I know Robert Thomas is a huge story. I know what we're going to talk about with the defense pairings. Like, Justin Falk certainly going to be discussed. We're going to talk about what, what they get from Tory Krug this season. All of that is interesting to me. But the single most fascinating storyline for me going into this upcoming season is what they get from Jordan Biddington and Ville Husso and what that ultimately means for the Blues in 2021. Yeah, you can look at other storylines all you want with Tarasenko coming back and, you know, what does the offense look like? What is Justin? The only storyline that frankly matters in terms of the Blues being a contender for the Stanley Cup is Jordan Bennington because you don't have that that net, that safety net of Jake Allen, and you also don't have the Jordan Bennington, or at least you haven't seen the Jordan Bennington that was posting shutout after shutout after shutout in 2018-19 season. And if he doesn't become that player, like what do they do then? Because they're... There's no other options that are clear and defined for them right now. There's there's other stuff that's potentially on the way in the yeah. future, but right now he they really really need him to be the guy. So that's going to be something that we certainly discuss as the season goes along and fingers crossed here in about a month from now we're actually going to be able to watch some games. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line for questions and answers. I've got a question that I want to ask Alex. I know that much. If you've got anything for us, get those in on the Air Comfort Service tax line 65780. Questions and answers coming up next. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line for questions and answers. All right, so the news of the day in Major League Baseball is that Adam Eaton just signed a one-year $7 million deal with the White Sox. He has an $8.5 million club option for 2022. Let's set that aside. I have no idea whether or not that's likely to be picked up. $7 million for Adam Eaton is interesting because as Craig Edwards, a fan grass, points out, Adam Eaton didn't even make his top 50 free agent list. Here are some of the outfielders who did. George Springer, Marcelo Zuna, Michael Brantley, Jock Peterson, Jackie Bradley Jr., Jerickson Profar, Brady, uh, Brett Gardner, and Robbie Grossman. He also says that Schwarber would have been on it if he had been added to the initial list of free agents. That is eight outfielders, nine outfielders potentially, that would have been listed above Adam Eaton for him on his free agent list. So the question that I think is going to be interesting and the question that I would like to ask you, Ferrario, is Eaton's $7 million contract a sign that the outfield market is going to be valued at a premium this offseason, higher than we originally expected? Or is this going to be viewed eventually as a team that 
targeted a specific player for a specific need that they had, and they decided to pay above market value to sign him early. Like, which side do you think this is going to ultimately end up on? Because if it ends up being the former, where this is going to be a more expensive market than, than we originally expected, I think suddenly our expectations for what the Cardinals do in that market are going to change very quickly. How would it be the latter, though? Like, how do you look at Adam Eaton and look at the White Sox team and say, oh, well, they 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 targeted Eaton as a specific player that they needed for right field? I, because I guess the, the argument would be he's a different style of player from those other guys that are on the list. If you needed a right fielder and you felt like you wanted a guy that could be a leadoff type of a hitter, that's going to get on base, that takes walks, that has speed and brings a little bit of quality defense to your team. Well, that's not exactly what you're getting from Ozuna or Brantley or Peterson or Profar. Maybe you could argue Jackie Bradley Jr., but he's not as much of an on-base guy as Adam Eaton. So if that on-base percentage really meant something to them, maybe that could be the argument, but that's all I can really muster up. Here. Eddie Rosario seems to be a better option than Adam Eaton. And if you're going to pay $7 million, you probably could have gotten Rosario for $7 million. You're getting more power. You're getting a younger player, more speed on the base paths. The only thing I can think of is Eaton was, was a veteran who just won a world series. Maybe that helps, but I don't know if baseball teams value that as much as hockey teams do sure. or anything like that. I got to believe it's the former. I got to believe this is the market and it's just pricing the Cardinals out of upgrading the players that we thought they were because of Adam Eaton, who, when I had him on my top 10 list last week, you forgot you had him on there. Your (laughs) verbatim response BK was, if that guy got paid $7 million with an option for $8 million, folks, I can guarantee you Schwarber, Rosario, Peterson, who was just a part of a world series team. These guys are going to get paid that or more money from a team with or without the DH. It's just really surprising because over the last two years in 192 games, he's hit 19 homers. He he doesn't have power at no. this point in his career. He's a speed guy. He's a Harrison Bader with more contact. Yeah. Better on base percentage mm-hmm. than Bader does. But I mean, I. I'm just really surprised by the signing because I I didn't think that that was going to be the direction that the White Sox went. And if it was, I certainly didn't think $7 million. I mean, the yeah. projections for him were around 3 to $4 million. We're getting some texts in. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. He's played for him before. They probably like him as a leadoff guy. He eats pitches. They traded him away. <laughs> they got a ton of return yeah, for him. From Washington. You know, they got a massive return for dealing him. But man, I... I hope that that's not what the market's going to be, because yeah. if it is, it totally changes the way that I'm going to look at what the Cardinals are going to be able to add. Agreed. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers from the 314. Guys, do you believe that Jordan Bennington benefited from playing on a team with a top defense? Because I can't lie, I'm part of the 78% that believes that he's just an above average goalie that looks better than that because of the defense in front of him. Do you think that that is the case? There's no question that he benefited from it. I mean, look at the amount of shots that he saw in that first year. Like it wasn't league high shots. And of course, with Bo Meester and Pareko and Petrangelo, like you had probably the best decor in the National League at the time. But also look at what he did in the playoffs that year. Like he was making saves that he shouldn't have made. It was desperation save after desperation save. Defense helped. 
But that was the Bennington I think we all understand. And look, I'm not shooting down the people that voted because I think there should be questions about Bennington, especially for how many goals he let up in that series against Vancouver. But again, I go back to this is the first time he's actually had an offseason to where he can prep. You know, before it was prepping in the AHL and playing and then getting that NHL shot. But from that moment on, he didn't even get to blink before he was playing 60 plus games in a season. So and then you had the the stop start and the bubble. And I mean, there was a lot of them. There was no rhyme or reason as to what was going on. I believe he's a really good goalie. I want to be I want Jordan Bennington this year to prove it to me again. Mm -hmm. Like I he doesn't have to do what he did in year one. That's unsustainable. Right. We we all knew that then and we know it now. I want him to be a little better than he was a year ago, though. Mm-hmm. And I want it because of him. Because there is no Alex Petrangelo there anymore. The defense should still be good, but it's not going to be what it was with Petro because Petrangelo is one of the five to seven best defensemen in hockey right, right now. So I... I'll be interested to see what he looks like this season, and I want him to prove it to me once again that this is the guy that the Blues should build around, and you can win a Stanley Cup not with him, but because of him. I'll never forget, I I had the conversation with Grant Fuhrer in the postseason when they were on that run of the Stanley Cup, and I asked Fuhrer because Fuhrer had the same thing where he came into the league and he took it by storm, and I asked him, I said, what when do you know that you have a franchise goaltender? And yeah. he said, you don't know until the second full season that you got a guy. And think about it. You haven't had two full seasons of Jordan Bennington yet. Frankly, you've had one full season when you go from half of a season to a half of a season before the work stoppage. Do you think this would count I think as so. another full season? I think this would count as the full season. I think you view that first one when he won the cup as a full season because you played technically a full season from January to the end of June, what it would be October to April, May. Yep. So I think this is that that second full season where you have a normal off season and you can go into it as the everyday goaltender. So I think a lot of people, at least from a Hall of Famer's point of view, will learn what Jordan Biddington is after this season. He's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. How many NFL teams are good right now? I laughed at Anthony Stalter when he asked me that question yesterday because I said there's a lot of good teams. How many of them are really good, though? We're going to talk about that coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Roethlisberger throws out the way. Tipped up in the air and intercepted. Intercepted by John Bostick at the 25. Washington takes over with a three-point lead. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. That play-by-play courtesy of Westwood won yesterday as the Steelers lose their first game of the season against the Washington professional football team. I think Alex Smith, if he hadn't won it yet yesterday, won comeback player of the year. I can't believe they're five and seven on the season and the way that Alex Smith has been able to turn that year around for them. Hell of a year for Alex Smith. Huge congrats to him and the team for the win yesterday. So yesterday we talked with Anthony Stalter in... Our crossover and he asked us what I thought was a simple question I kind of laughed at it at the moment how many NFL teams are good right now and it sounds kind of silly right like how many NFL teams I, I think there's a lot of them I like the Bills we saw them again last night they looked pretty good I think the Steelers are good the Browns are good Titans Colts I like both of them I know the Chiefs are good but how many teams are so good that you would be surprised if they don't make their conferences championship game I think that's a different way to frame the question a bit, because I think when you ask it that way, to me, there's only two. I'm pretty certain at this point, the Chiefs are going to make the AFC championship game. 
I'm pretty certain if Drew Brees comes back healthy, and that's a big if, but if he does, I think the Saints are good enough on both sides of the ball now that I'm confident they will make the NFC Championship game. I don't have that same (laughs) confidence about literally anybody else in the league right now. And so that's where I kind of am at the point of, man, this thing feels pretty wide open to me. I wouldn't be surprised if the Bills make the AFC championship game. Yeah. But I also wouldn't be surprised if in the first round of the playoffs, they lose to the Colts or the Browns. I wouldn't be surprised if the Packers make it to the NFC championship game. But would you be stunned if they lost in the first round to the Seahawks? No, no. I certainly wouldn't. And so the both conferences to me feel wide open when you look at it through that through that lens. For you, Ferrario, how many teams would you be surprised if they failed to make it to their conference championship game. Boy, before you you gave those examples and scenarios, I, I wanted to say those teams. Like, I, I would be surprised if the Bills weren't there, but you're right. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Bills got knocked off in that first round for how they played. Now, I don't see that happening. They would be more of a surprise to me not being in the AFC championship than the Steelers right now. Because the Steelers have had three weeks where it's just like, boy, this team doesn't even look like they can compete for a Super Bowl now more than ever where they're afraid to run the football. Like they didn't even run the football last night against Mm -hmm. Washington. And then in the NFC, again, I feel like the Packers should be in that NFC championship just as much as the Saints should be. But we've seen that defense have so many flaws. So, yeah, I think there's two teams. I think that's the Chiefs right now, which you can make the argument that you wouldn't be surprised if they lost it for how they've had a couple of games this season. For me, I view the Steelers, Bills, Titans, Browns, and Colts as being in the same tier in the AFC. I think they're all basically the same. They all have really high highs, and they have some very clear deficiencies. The Steelers' defense is awesome. It's really, really good. But their offense has some question marks right now. You mentioned the running game. We saw that on full display last night. It, it was nowhere to be seen. The receivers, as much as I love the talent, Chase Claypool is awesome. Juju, fantastic player. Deontay Johnson, really like watching him. They had like 15 drops yesterday. It was one of the highest drop percentages in any individual games in the last 20 years in the league. So they've got some question marks offensively. Same thing is true for the Titans on defense, as we just saw this week against the Browns. The Browns, if they got into the playoffs, do you trust Baker Mayfield in a playoff game? I don't. No. Same thing is true for the Colts. I don't trust Phillip Rivers right now if another team is able to get any pressure on him. You go over to the NFC. Packers, Rams, Seahawks, Bucks. I like all of those teams, but do you trust Jared Goff? I certainly don't. Do you trust the Seahawks or the Packers defensively? No. Do you trust that the Bucks are going to be able to turn things around and get it totally figured out? I don't. They're seven and five on the season. How could I at this point? So as much as I love the Chiefs and the Saints, I don't think there's anybody else that I am in love with right now that I feel like I can trust to the point where I know they're going to make it to the championship games. And I think that sets up for a really, really entertaining postseason this year, especially in the NFC. And we've talked about this being wide open. There are so many teams right now that, that can play upset in a heartbeat. Like Washington, Washington yesterday, they've solidified, even with the giants beating the Seahawks, they've solidified as the best team in that NFC East division right now. I agree with you just because of how good that defense is and how they've shut down some really good teams this season. And now having Alex Smith, I think you'd be talking about them differently if Smith was the starting quarterback, but in the NFC, I can see Washington knocking off at least two or three of the teams that we sit here and say, Oh, well they're easy NFC championship teams. 
Correct me if I'm wrong here, BK, but Tampa to me is a team that I think a lot of people will be surprised if they're not in the NFC championship, not because of the talent, but because of the names. For sure. Like they're they're the team that the Packers, if they get bounced, okay, could have seen it coming. They don't have enough talent. Seahawks don't have enough talent. But Tampa's a team that if they don't make it, you look at it and you say, Wow, Brady, Gronk, Mike Evans, Godwin, Brown, like all of these names, and you sit there and you go, Wow, that's embarrassing that they didn't make it. Yeah, and that's why Bruce Arians has more pressure on him in this postseason than probably any other coach in the league. I right agree. Now. I mean, if you look over in the AFC, I don't think there's any coaches where if their team gets bounced in the first round of the playoffs, you're going to be like, man, that was a total disappointment, maybe outside of the Chiefs. But Andy Reid's not at risk of getting fired as a result of that. Same thing in the NFC. Like if the Rams were to lose in the first round, they weren't expected coming into the season to be a Super Bowl contender anyways. So you move forward and you know Sean McVay is going to get it figured out and he's a good coach. Bruce Arians is the only one this year that of the playoff contenders, if he were to lose in the first round, I think that it could go south really quickly to really? the point where I think he could get fired in the offseason because of it. And he's the only guy that I can say that about. Um, you brought up earlier in this conversation, Josh Allen and how we all like the bills and what they did yesterday was really impressive in yeah. that game offensively. I was thinking about this la- uh, last night as I was watching Josh Allen of these four young quarterbacks. If I told you you could take one for the next decade, so four young quarterbacks, you can take one. Would you take Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray, or Justin Herbert? Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, for Kyler the, Murray, or Justin Herbert. For the next Herbert, 10 years? You get him for the next 10 years as your starting quarterback. I think I'm going Josh Allen. And I say that mostly because he's doing what he's doing without elite talent. Like Stephon Diggs is a great wide receiver. But he's making plays with Cole Beasley. He's making plays with guys that on other teams would probably be fighting for a number two spot in the wide receiver position. But you look at Kyler Murray, who has DeAndre Hopkins and Larry Fitzgerald. Without these guys, he seems to fall off a little bit. Lamar Jackson, the exact same. We've already decided on that with the weapons that he's got. And even with Justin Herbert, who I think you could put in the same boat, But Justin Herbert struggles here and there. Like Josh Allen weekly goes out there and gives you at least two touchdowns of offense with a bunch of players that most other teams wouldn't be considered elite. I think I would go Justin Herbert on this. And it's because I think Justin Herbert right now is basically Josh Allen. Like, I think he's already there. Just less crazy. And it's just I I think it's sometimes (laughs) you you see similar uh, tendencies there. I think the same style is there with Herbert that you get with Josh Allen, the same upside, but he's a rookie. And so I've seen it now for three, four years from Josh Allen. I still don't know what the potential is there for Justin Herbert. The upside, I think, is a little higher. I put this on Twitter and asked, and you can follow me on Twitter at BK Sports Talk. You can follow Alex at Ferrario 101 ESPN. I asked on Twitter about this, and I was really surprised by the results. It's basically tied a third for Josh Allen, Kyler Murray, and Justin Herbert. All of them are right around 30%. Lamar Jackson got 4% of the vote right now. That doesn't surprise me. Lamar, if I asked this question one year ago today, oh yeah, would have been maybe the second overall pick in the NFL behind only Patrick Mahomes. Like, I don't know that there was another quarterback in the league that the vast majority of NFL viewers would have taken over Lamar at this time last year. And it just it, it serves as a reminder of how quickly all of this stuff can change, man. The NFL is truly not for long. And Lamar Jackson was the MVP unanimously 
last year and deserved to be so. And now we're talking about him as the clear-cut fourth option out of these four guys if you were starting a team. Just think it's because the glass shattered on everyone's opinion on Lamar Jackson when we started to see that the legs were the biggest weapon of Lamar Jackson and the arm wasn't living up to what we saw in that first season. Once that glass shatters, it's hard to repair that if you're a quarterback. It's twelve fourteen. your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. What the heck is going on out in Cincinnati? And how does that that impact the rest of the NL Central? We're going to talk to C. Trent Rosecrans when he joins us coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Happy to be joined by C. Trent Rosecrans joining us here on 101 ESPN. He covers the Reds for the Athletic Cincinnati. Wanted to get his perspective on the news of the day yesterday that it certainly appears the Reds are starting to go in a new direction, dumping a little bit of salary in their trade of Rysel Iglesias to the Angels. C. Trent, always appreciate the time, my friend. How are you doing today? Fantastic. That is the loosest uh, use of the word celebrity I think I've ever heard. (laughs) You know what? When we have you on, we are going to use it to its full ability. So let's talk about that trade yesterday. Um, It seems to signal to the outside world, and I know you've been signaling this for a while, the Reds are moving in a new direction right now, and they said they're reallocating resources. For the listeners here in St. Louis, C. Trent, What's going on right now with their decision in terms of what the payroll is going to look like next year in Cincinnati? You know, it's it's kind of a weird spot. It's you know, I, I think I put this to, to someone uh, earlier today. It's almost like an extension of the non-tender deadline. That's what the deal with Rayseal Iglesias was. It was almost like a non-tender um, that they got rid of him and his. Really, they got rid of his his contract more, more than anything. Um, nine million and change. It's easy to, for me to call that change. <laughs> it's a change that we would all kill for, wouldn't it? Um, but you know, nine million and change that they got rid of uh, for when, when the GM. When you ask about the, uh, the the player they got in return, they go, you know, he's been a pretty good reliever for a while, and he's got a, a pretty good slider. Uh, if that's what you're talking about in return, it is not about what the return was. It is about what you sent away. And it wasn't that you sent away the player. It's that you sent away the contract. And this is a team that uh, between the non-tender deadline and the uh, trade of Rysel Iglesias has cleared up, you know, ballpark. Because, again, we were talking with non-tender. You're talking about uh, what was going to happen in arbitration. So maybe around $20 million, um, But that still puts them in, say, the – payroll somewhere around 120 ish area like it's not a complete teardown and i don't think they can do that because you have those big contracts like the joey Votto contract that you're still going to have for another three seasons um nick castellanos and mike moustakis who they paid last off season and they were the high bidders on those neither one of those guys had such a season that um was going to exactly uh, make them more desirable than they were a year ago. So it's not like you're going to find any bidders to take those off your hands. So, you know, you're, you're stuck with three players there that have you, let's see, 25, another 30. That's like 55 million. So you're going to have a base where you're going to be 
you're going to have a hundred or so. So you can't like go down to the studs. It's a, uh, it's a, it's you're in that middle in between um, place. And that's, that's just not where it's not conducive to really building or winning. And it's a, it's a tough place to be, but that almost seems to be where the national league central is for the most part. So you're, you know, this is the, this is, uh, if you want to kind of, I, I guess I'm talking to St. Louis. So <laughs> St. Louis, everything is compared to baseball. But for the rest of the outside world, it's like the NFC East of the baseball world. People are going to love hearing that, C. Trent, but it is so true. We're talking with C. Trent Rosencrantz, who covers the Reds for the Athletic in Cincinnati. So, C. Trent, with that being said, when you look at the NL Central, to me it kind of feels like it's follow the leader, right? Like the the Cardinals were the first team that cut bait with a player who was making salary in Colton Wong. Cubs come out, and when they move on from Theo Epstein and talk about how they're going to have to get rid of some of these contracts, and then now the Reds. So, so is this just an NL Central for the upcoming season that's following the leader of hey this is a transition year for us and we'll look at 2022 as a different season well there's so much unknown about 2022 isn't there yeah um you know and 2021 even i mean do we know how many players are going to be on a roster do we know if there's going to be a dh do we know if there's going to be fans in the stands um and then you go into 2022 when you have a new cba Hopefully, if all goes right, we actually have a 2022. Um, so what do you know? And I think it's a, a lot of these teams are kind of looking ahead. Like, what do we know? We don't want to have – we want to have as little on the books for a new reality as possible. Um, and all these teams are also kind of saying, hey, we can be mediocre and still get into the playoffs. Um, it's, it's kind of, you know, you, you don't have to be the best team to, you don't have to be a great team to get into the playoffs in the NL central. And, um, it, it's almost been like what it has been in this division for, for quite a while. And, uh, this is just kind of a continuation of it. We're talking to C. Trent Rosencrantz here on 101 ESPN, covers the Reds for the Athletic Cincinnati. Uh, C. Trent, the other thing that is being bantied about, the rumor that's going around in Cincinnati, is the Sonny Gray trade rumors. Do you think that he's going to be dealt as well? I know you mentioned some of the contracts that they're unlikely to be able to get rid from the books, but that would seem to be one that is at least still palatable for other teams. Do you think that's the next one to be removed from the books for Cincinnati? I, it seems well, if you just follow it and you look like, are they cutting? Yes. Are they looking? What, what can they get? What do they have a value? Sonny Gray is a value. And he is, you know, he costs the same as Drew Smiley. Would you rather have Drew Smiley or Sonny Gray? And I think that's what a lot of teams would look at. And like, well, Sonny Gray for a couple of years. Yeah, we'll do that. And for the Reds, it might be a win to say, Hey, we have struggled to trade people at the right time. Maybe this is someone we can actually trade and get value back for once. Because when you look at what their assets that they've had, like other than Dan Straley, who have they traded um, for value? And I mean, that was a pretty minor move at the time that is, that has yielded great results. But, you know, when you look at big names, Jay Bruce, Todd Frazier, Roldis Chapman, Rysel Iglesias, um, these kind of names, 
they have not uh, gotten a whole lot in return. It's funny because I think as you say that, like obviously we here locally are immediately thinking about the Cardinals, and that's kind of been the conversation about the Cardinals lately too. You trade Randy Rosarena, okay, what's the value for trading away a guy that hit like Babe Ruth in the playoffs? You traded away Luke Voigt, who then became an MVP candidate, and what's the value that you got in return there? So it sounds like there are some similarities in terms of the way that these teams are building. Do you think that's as much of a baseball problem as it is a Reds? or a Cardinals problem, or is there something specific that is uh, kind of the the through line between some of these moves, in your opinion? You know, it, it could be, and I think there are some similarities. And, you know, this is an organization that uh, has, has looked, the Reds organization has looked to the Cardinals as, as a North Star, honestly. They've looked at that as a model, and as well they should have. The Cardinals have been like a model organization in major league baseball however has that model been is it a model for is it a late model is it a model that has been outdated um is it the past model as opposed to the future model and that is something that is yet to be seen so when you bring up that future model, C. Trent, like look ahead for me here because I think that's what a lot of people in St. Louis are doing is looking at this NL Central. How do you view this looking forward in, let's say, three to five years from now? Because it seems like the Cubs are going to be going in the opposite direction. The Pittsburgh Pirates have kind of remained stagnant. Milwaukee going in the other direction. I mean, is it just St. Louis and Cincinnati right now that could be serious competitors when it comes to a two to three window? Oh, I don't know. I never, you know, I, I, I have way too much respect for the front office in, in Milwaukee. Um, you know, sometimes I kind of scratch my head at what they do, but it seems to work out. Um, I, you know, you look at it and I still kind of throw a lot of those teams besides the pirates and um, kind of put them into a hat and say, I wouldn't be surprised if any of these four teams finish first. I wouldn't be surprised if any of these four teams finish fourth. And there are times where the Reds are that fifth team instead of the Pirates, and you threw the Pirates in there as well. So I I don't know. I wouldn't bet on any of these long-term other than it depends on what Cubs ownership wants to do because, and, and really honestly, Cardinals ownership. Those are the two. I think the Cubs and the Cardinals are the two that can be juggernauts if they want to be juggernauts. If they are given the resources from ownership to be juggernauts, they can be. Um, But so much depends on how we come out of this. We as the Royal, we um, as an industry and as well, the really, really rich people who own uh, a lot of these uh, companies. um, If, if they're satisfied in being just really, really rich instead of really, 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 really rich. Um, and, and where their priorities lie. And that's what so much of this depends upon. And right now, the really, really, really rich are want to stay really, really, really rich and aren't content at being really, really rich and winning. <laughs> See, Trip, final question that I've got for you, back to the Reds in particular, kind of projecting forward this offseason, because again, I go back to that phrasing of reallocating resources that would at least indicate to me 
that the Reds aren't totally out on adding to their current roster while also kind of signaling that they're releasing some of these salary allocations. So when you look at it, are they still planning to add? I know they've been talked about with some shortstops on the market. Uh, Trevor Bauer is certainly still out there. Are, are they still looking at adding while also kind of subtracting from the payroll? I, I think they would. And I think there are some guys like I, if they do move Sonny Gray, if they move Sonny Gray, they will get players who will be on the big league roster immediately. And and one thing that's you know, you've got to look at their forty man rosters at thirty one right now. I predict. I know this is going to be bold. On opening day, their forty man roster will be at forty. I know. <laughs> Stepping out on a limb here. <laughs> so that means there will be more major league players on their roster <laughs> than there are now come opening day. That's why you bring me in the hot takes. It's the, it's the analysis that we can only get from one C Trent Rosencrans. You can follow his work over on the athletic Cincinnati. Also give him a follow on Twitter at C Trent. C Trent always appreciate the time, man, all the best to you and your family. And hopefully we have a full baseball season for you to cover next year. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today, man. Anytime. Fingers crossed. Absolutely. That's C Trent Rosencrans here on 101 ESPN. Wanted to have him on because I think the NL Central right now, it's like you put up, you know, that Spider-Man meme that goes around where it's just it's five teams and really it's four. Pittsburgh's kind of on the outside looking in, but it's four teams that are looking at each other as the Spider-Man meme or more accurately, maybe the office scene where they've all got the finger guns going out, waiting to see who's going to make the first move. Like they're all in the same spot. They're all maybe contender-ish next next season, 80 to 87 types of wins. That's, that's kind of the way that they're all building right now. They all want to slash as much salary as they can while still being competitive. And I think that's what the Reds are, the Cubs, the Cardinals, and the Brewers. They're all kind of in that same mindset right now of how do we slash payroll while also still remaining competitive and they're trying to fix things around, but it ultimately ends up where you're just moving the chairs on the Titanic in some ways of it, it's going to be pretty mediocre for the upcoming season, unless there's big moves that happen for one of those. And teams. it's like you said, it all comes down to uh, when your ownership wants to be competitive. And I think that goes for all four teams that aren't the pirates. All four teams can say, you know what? We're going to win the central. We're going to compete with the Dodgers. Let's go spend money. Here's money for it. So it's interesting. I wanted to react to a couple of things in particular that he had to say there. There were two quotes that he had. The first one, is the Cardinals model a model that has been outdated at this point? The second one, there are two teams in the NL Central that can be juggernauts if they want to be. We're going to talk about that on the other side here on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Those are the two. I think the Cubs and the Cardinals are the two that can be juggernauts if they want to be juggernauts. If they are given the resources from ownership to be juggernauts, they can be. That was C. Trent Rosencrans, who covers the Reds for the Athletic up in Cincinnati. I thought it was really interesting what he just had to say. The Cubs and the Cardinals are the only two teams in the NL Central that truly can be juggernauts. And we've seen it in the past, right? The Reds just went through a five-year period where they were very clearly at least in most minds, the best team in the division, most talented team in the division. They had the money to spend and they ultimately went for it over the last five years or so. And now they're starting that downward cycle this year or next at the very latest. The Cardinals had 
a 10-year period from like 04 to 2013 where they were very clearly the dominant team in the NL Central. And for most of those seasons, they spent like they were the dominant team in the NL Central. So the question that C. Trent Rosencrantz questions there is, do they want to be that dominant team? Do they want to be a juggernaut? And I think what they've told us over the last five years, the Cardinals at least, is the answer to that question for now is no. They're okay with being pretty good. They're okay with being a playoff contender. They're okay with consistently competing and getting the 3.4 million fans in the stands and being a team that uh, competes for the division every year. And that's good enough for them. And that's fine. But then it brings into question, okay, is there going to be a time when you're willing to go that extra mile, when somebody becomes available like Nolan Arenado or Francisco Lindor or Corey Seager, and you decide to go all in with that guy? And I think the answer to that question, at least now, appears to be no, Ferrario. And I think if I'm a Cardinals fan and 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line, you can check out the Rhino Shield mic drop feature if you want to get your thoughts in on this as well on the 101 ESPN app. I think for Cardinals fans, that's what's frustrating is most of them can accept 2021 being a transition year only if it comes with the light at the end of the tunnel of, Okay, then 2022 needs to be when we start on the ascent again. That's when you need to go out into this historic free agent class with all of the shortstops that are going to be available. And you need to grab one. Or if there's a pitcher that becomes available that can give you a one-two monster at the top end of the rotation with Jack Flaherty, go get that guy. But it can't just be 2021 as a reset to be able to start this new cycle again of winning 85 to 90 games a year again, because we've seen how that results and it doesn't end up being a model that allows you to be this juggernaut that he's talking about. Well, and I think it's gotten to the point where it's just stale for the Cardinals right now, because you go back to the last time that they were in the World Series, right? And everyone argues that that was layover from Tony LaRusso's squad, right? Like that wasn't the John Mosellock team. However you want to view it, that last time that you were in the World Series, You've never taken that shot, right? Like you made the trade for Paul Goldschmidt, which was finding an upgrade at first base, but you've never gone out there and made that shot to go for the World Series. You're and by tr- the way, an objectively good move. Like that was yes. the, the right move and you they deserve all to. the credit for it. You had to because your other options, Jose Martinez and Matt Carpenter, weren't working out at first base. So you made the move that needed to be made. But if you look at what the Dodgers did in Mookie Betts, if you go back and look at what the Nationals did before they won the World Series, go back and look at past World Series champions. You go out to free agency when you've hit that mark and you say, now's the time and you're willing to spend the money. And I think that's where this frustration comes from. It's not just this transition year. It's all of the transition years from the last time that they were in the World Series to now. We got a mic drop from Nick on the Rhino Shield mic drop feature. Again, you can check it out on the free 101 ESPN app. Here's what Nick had to say about all of this. First of all, yes, I think the Cardinals model is outdated. Second of all, would it behoove the Cardinals to try and go out and sign some of these people now, basically bite the bullet next year when it comes to cost, knowing full well that if they go out and get some of these top-level free agents that other teams just aren't willing to spend the money on, that they could actually set themselves up for years to come? Because what I'm afraid of is that after this year, everybody's going to be in bidding wars for all these teams because everybody will be able to open up the books again, whereas they could get ahead of the game now. And I think that's the concern, right, is, okay, so right now you're not willing to go all in on these guys. And Frankly, I understand it. I really do. I, I can I can be frustrated by it while also understanding the business side. 
Bill DeWitt Jr. just took a lot of hits this year. They are one of the teams that got hit the worst by not being able to have any gate revenue. They always consistently have 3.4 million fans through the stands. Mm -hmm. They didn't have that this year. So I get that. But also, this is the time when other teams out there are not trying to spend. We just saw the Reds go through this where they're sending out as much money as they possibly can. There's been indicators from all across baseball that this is just going to be an offseason where teams are not looking to spend by and large. And so the bidding wars, you wouldn't think, are going to be as much as they will be next year when teams have just had a full season of at least some fans in the stand. And then they look to 2022 where knock on wood, if there's a CBA agreement, they should have full fans in the stands. Now you're going to have a lot more competition Mm -hmm. for those players that are out on the open market. So it becomes very difficult for the Cardinals to get into what they call the auctions and win those auctions. But they have to. If they're not going to do it this offseason, and I think we'll all understand it, at least to some degree, then at some point you have to be willing to go out there and pay off what you've been selling. Somebody on the text line, 65780, said it's always next year with the Cardinals. That's been their mantra for five years now. And that's what the Cardinals are risking by doing this. And they're, they're saying, hey, next year, next year, next year, look to the next year's free agent class. Eventually, next year has to pay off. It has to be the season, the off season, where they do go make that big move, that move that ultimately puts it over the top. Because if that next year isn't the next year, like sooner or later, your prospects that you're saying are going to be a part of a championship team become useless to you, right? Like we've talked about it. At what point when you're competitive is Paul Goldschmidt not the guy that you traded for? But think about that also with the outfielders. Like if you continue to say, well, next year we're expecting Tyler O'Neill to be a four-hole hitter, or next year we're expecting Harrison Bader to be a leadoff hitter. If you keep saying next year with these guys, and finally you have to admit failure with them and they never pan out, well, then you've missed out on trying to take your team to the next level. And then next year resets to, well, now we're five years away, or now we're going to have to draft more players. And Like how many times can you sit here and say, well, we just drafted this guy and he's going to be the third baseman of the future? 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. Here's the issue for the Cardinals. Our payroll is still very competitive. The problem is that John Mosaylock uses the dollars on players that we don't like. He seems to be the issue. I will always cape for John Mosaylock because I think he's a really good general manager. I think the question is, are they willing to go in on those superstar players where they are in the primes of their careers? We've seen lately Paul Goldschmidt. You get him at the back end of his career. You're willing to give him that five-year deal, and they deserve credit for it. They gave him $25 million a year. That is a big contract that they were willing to hand out. They gave Yadier Molina $20 million per year. Objectively, a big contract to hand out. They gave Matt Carpenter, God bless him, $18 million per year. Same thing for Miles Michaelis. They're willing to give the money. It's not that they're unwilling to spend But when you have that 26, 27, 28-year-old player that hits free agency, talking about the likes of Manny Machado or Bryce Harper or next offseason with all of the shortstops, they are unwilling, it appears, to give out that 10-year, 7-year, 8-year deal. And those are the types of players that really change the outlook for your team. And they don't want to get in on those because Mm -hmm. they don't like the long-term spending. They don't view it as $25 million per year over an extra three years. They view it as an extra 75 to $100 million compared to paying the likes of Paul Goldschmidt for that five-year deal. And it's just it's a fundamental disagreement with how I view those players compared to how they view them. Well, and it brings up what C-Trend also stated about is this the right 
Like, is this the right blueprint for success? Looking at the Cardinals way and looking at what they've done, where everyone was trying to mimic what they were doing. At some point, you have to ask the question, is that the successful route? Because if they're not willing to do that and not willing to bring those players in, but we'll do the short term contracts and hope for the younger players to grow. If you continue to do the same thing over and over, you finally have to look at another team like the Dodgers and say, you know what? Maybe this is the blueprint we need to go after. And here is that quote from C. Trent Rosencrans where he was talking about the Cardinals being the North Star for the Cincinnati Reds in recent years. The Reds organization has looked to the Cardinals as, as a North Star. Honestly, they've looked at that as a model as well they should have. However, is it a model that has been outdated? Um, is it the past model as opposed to the future model? And I think that's the question that we've been asking here on the show for about a year now. I think it's a question that a lot of Cardinals fans have been wondering basically since 2016 or so. It is the question around baseball. Can you win this way? Can you be sustainable while being around 10th in payroll? Because the Dodgers are very sustainable. They are first or second or third in payroll every year. The Yankees appear to be very sustainable. They're top three in payroll every year. Is it possible if you're not in that top three type of a realm in terms of the payroll to have a sustainable winner that also has that peak years, those peak performances where they are breaking through to win a World Series? We've seen it with the Astros where they went through the cycle of tanking and then ended up having their peak years, albeit with some cheating involved. (laughs) The Cubs did the same thing. The Royals did the same thing. A lot of the teams that have had those one-offs in recent years have been, you go through the cycle of tanking and then build and then tank and then build and then tank and then build. Is that the only way to do it? If you're not a top three payroll team, it's a question that all of baseball right now is trying to answer, and it's it's affecting the Cardinals as much as anybody else in the game right now. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, let's dive into the junk drawer here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's dive into the junk drawer here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. I'll get things started today for us, Ferrario. All righty. I believe this to be one of the greatest statements ever given. So if you missed the news yesterday, UNLV quarterback Max Gilliam was in the headlines for something that I deem to be not only not unfortunate, Something that as the quarterback at UNLV, I actually think this is exactly what should be taking place. So here is his statement that comes from his notes app on his phone (laughs) that I'm looking at right now. And it appears that he's around 15, 20 percent in terms of his charge. (laughs) It's just the straight screenshot that. that he put onto Twitter. He says, quote, I would like to apologize for my poor judgment while on the TV show Below Deck and to acknowledge that I've made a mistake that I will learn from. He continues, while it was not my idea nor any of my friend's idea to eat sushi off of a model, (laughs) I should have exercised better judgment and declined the idea immediately when it was brought up by the producers, throwing everybody under the bus. This is not a reflection of my character or the way that I was raised, nor a reflection of the culture of the UNLV football team. I would like to humbly move past this and focused on my time and energy as we continue to prepare for our game against the University of Hawaii this weekend. Thank you, Max Gilliam. So the full story here. What the hell? (laughs) 
Max Gilliam was featured on the show Below Deck, which from what I understand, it is a reality TV show. Is this like real world? Basically, but it is on a yacht. Oh, so it's so, rich people real world. Yes. That makes sense. Okay. He, on that show, which airs on Bravo, by the way, which tell you kind of what the theme of the show is. He ate sushi off of a naked model while, quote unquote, below deck on a yacht. This show aired a month ago. It aired in early November. I don't know how it became a story in early December, but apparently it became a story a few days ago, and he has since had to send out an apology. Do people not think this is the kind of stuff that's happening to your college athletes, especially at UNLV? Yeah, what do they think is happening, like, Saturday night after a football game? Like, this is this is normal. <laughs> this is a normal thing for college. Frankly, this is a normal thing for college students. Eating sushi off of naked models is what should be expected yeah. from Max well, Gilliam. What, why, what kind of world are we living in that you have to apologize for eating sushi off of a model? And then he's blaming the producers. Hey, <laughs> what, what a statement. Hey, I would like to apologize <laughs> for my poor judgment. <laughs> hey, if a producer's telling me to do something with, you know, money involved with it, Probably going to do it if it's not murder. Ferrario, what do you have for us today? That's the incredible Junk Turbo, to me. Well, here's something else that uh, I guess somebody's telling them to do. A lot more money involved with this one. Floyd Mayweather is now going back into the boxing ring. And I know everybody's oh, heard God. about this, but Floyd Mayweather is going back into the boxing ring to fight against YouTube star Logan Paul. <laughs> My first question is, why the hell are we here right now? Like, this is the ultimate junk in the junk drawer of a YouTube star who has fought another YouTube star and won, then fought a basketball star who had zero training in boxing and won. And so now we are at the point where Logan Paul is going into a ring with an undefeated boxing champion and is going to make north of $500 million because of this over an exhibition fight. So here's what I don't understand. Like, I get the appeal of watching Mike Tyson in a exhibition game, uh, exhibition boxing yeah. match. I, I really do understand the appeal. At least there's power there. They're seeing a guy that once was one of the most feared human beings on the planet. Yep. What is the appeal of Floyd Mayweather? Because even when he was at the peak of his powers, Floyd was unbelievable, an incredible technician. Yeah. Do I want to see an incredible technique uh, technique no. boxer go up against a YouTube star? No, I want to see somebody that has the potential to knock his ass out. The only flair that came with Floyd Mayweather, and look, I'm guilty of it. I've watched Floyd Mayweather fights. I love watching boxing matches. The interesting part with Mayweather was the fact that this guy was undefeated and you're always waiting to see that one loss come or does he continue with it like he's breaking Rocky Marciano records with this stuff but to go into a ring on an exhibition fight to fight Logan Paul yeah there's no interest in this like give me Give me someone who will just, Frank, give me Shaq in the boxing ring with Logan Paul, because at least there's a possibility of a knockout to this what? guy. I'll I don't take need Shaq. to see Shaq. I'll take Shaq in there, right? You get the reach. I would rather, like, Evander Kane. I would rather see Evander Kane or in Or Ryan one. Reeves. Sure, absolutely. So somebody that is coming in that 
it's just going to be entertaining. I know one thing about watching Floyd Mayweather from watching him over the years. This is not going to be entertaining. By the way, it's Jake Paul that's so coming in. Jake Paul is the one that fought Nate, Nate Robinson. Mm-hmm. This one is Logan, Logan Paul. Paul. This so is the his two brother. brothers apparently are YouTube stars that also decided to box on the side. I don't totally understand and it, but whatever. both had boxing matches as well. But the only good thing that came from this, BK... It's the fact that Snoop Dogg's getting back into the broadcast is he? booth. He's is he apparently calling this match. Fantastic. So well, I'm I'm in on that part of it. At least that'll make it a little bit more to- more tolerable. But I I didn't need. I was not clamoring no. to see another fight from Floyd Mayweather. No. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service text line. I want to ask you guys a question. Who is the Cardinals' best candidate to have a bounce-back season in 2021? We'll give you our answers. We'll hear from you as well. Coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. I think he's going to have a really good season. I, from talking to him, I know he's excited that he made some mental adjustments and, and maybe a little bit of a physical adjustment at the plate, kind of getting back to his roots of hitting the ball the other way. I think I think that that's uh, – in talking to him, he seems happier and, and to be enjoying uh, the game a little bit more. I know last year was rough. So that was Matt Holiday before the 2020 season predicting that the 2020 year would be a bounce back season for Matt Carpenter. Obviously didn't turn out the way that any of us would have hoped. However, the Cardinals are likely to have somebody on the current roster that bounces back from a poor performance last year. And let's be honest, there are plenty of candidates to be able to (laughs) choose from from this question. Sports Illustrated. Answered this question for each and every team. Who is the guy that is likely to bounce back after a rough season for the Cardinals? They went with Paul DeYoung. They said by the end of their stretch of 53 games and 44 days, DeYoung was spent. It showed up in his play. In 2020, his power diminished and his defense lagged. His minus four outs above average, which is a stat cast number, were the worst among all shortstops in the National League this season. End quote. Again, that comes from Sports Illustrated saying that they think Paul DeYoung is the Cardinal most likely to bounce back in the 2021 season. Ferrario for you and 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get your thoughts in on this. Who do you think is going to be the Cardinal that has that bounce back season? You know, I want to say Paul DeYoung, but I'm not so sold on that one. Frankly, or solely because of his struggles when it comes to getting late into the seasons. And now you don't have a Tommy Edmond to spell him unless they bring somebody up. I think it's going to be Jack Flaherty. I really do. And I'm surprised that Sports Illustrated didn't go with him over Paul DeYoung. Because, look, Jack Flaherty was good last year, but he was not Jack Flaherty that we all were hoping he was going to be. He was not the Cy Young Jack Flaherty. I really think in 162 game or 156 game, whatever this season's going to be, Jack Flaherty's going to turn it on. Because the COVID holdup, throwing in his hotel room, and then the Cardinals kind of putting a leash on him for, for the rest of the season in terms of innings... I think it got underneath his skin. And I've only talked to Jack Flaherty a couple times, but this guy is a gamer. This guy is competitive. If I'm picking somebody who's going to bounce back, I think Jack Flaherty is going to be that guy that if Wainwright's not back, if the rotation doesn't have a Dakota Hudson in these safety nets, he's going to go out there and he is going to throw like we all expected him to be this year. So I've got two answers for it, and that's a good one. I mean, Jack Flaherty, if he doesn't have a good year, would be a real surprise to me. The guy that I would start with that I think is most likely to have a bounce back season that hasn't been named yet is Tommy Edmond. Yeah. Tommy Edmond had a tremendous first season with the Cardinals. 300 batting average, 500 slugging percentage, had 35 extra base hits in 92 games. 
It's a really, really good season. And last year, he just didn't follow it up with the same kind of power numbers. His on-base percentage slag, uh, slacks down. And it just it wasn't the same kind of year that we expected from Tommy Edmond. I think he's going to be better this year playing every day at one spot. He's your everyday second baseman, and you just play him that way going forward. So I think Tommy Edmond is going to be a 270 hitter that hits for a decent amount of power, hits plenty of doubles, 25, 30 doubles this year, steals 10, 15 bases. And I think he gets back to most of 70, 80% of the player that we saw in 2019, as opposed to what we saw this past season. Mm-hmm. That's the guy that I think is most likely to be the bounce back candidate. The one that I think the Cardinals might be banking on the most as their bounce back candidate is not going to be one that I think Cardinals fans want to hear about. Don't say Matt Carpenter. It's Matt Carpenter. Oh, Jesus. If you look right now at what we've been talking about all offseason, where is the addition from the outside likely to come from? Mm-hmm. It's the outfield, right? It's outfield yep. slash DH. So that leaves a massive hole at third base. As of today, who do you think would be the starting third baseman for the Cardinals in 2021? It's Matt Carpenter without question. So if we go through the free agent options for them, I mean, you've got Tommy LaStella who was out there. You've got Jonathan Scope out there. There aren't a whole lot of other options that they could add on the infield. And I was looking at what Derek Gould wrote in his um, questions and answers on the St. Louis Post Dispatched website. And somebody asked him, are the Cardinals likely to add an outfielder and an infielder this offseason? Here was Derek Gould's response, quote, no, their outfield production has been dramatically lower than league average at positions that are supposed to provide offense full stop. They're looking to add an outfielder and they could add an infielder as they look for their matchup uh, correlation. But the outfield is the most direct route for them to improve. That shouts to me. The Cardinals are looking at outfielders. So Jack Peterson, all the names that we've been talking so much about and the infield is a secondary concern. If that is the case, then the Cardinals, at least based on what we know, would appear to be counting on Matt Carpenter as their everyday third baseman right now. Which doesn't make any sense to me. And look, I understand we are hard on Matt Carpenter here. I was hearing Brad Thompson talk about it yesterday on the fast lane, saying that, look, he's he's above average when it comes to defensive play at third base. He's not horrible. Offensively, he hasn't been great, but he at least provides you something. We are hard on Matt Carpenter. But bringing in an outfielder, and that is the obvious upgrade for this team through free agency, I don't understand how when we continue to sit here and talk about all of these guys that are going to be getting playing time. And I talked to you about this in the offense. There is a clause with Matt Carpenter, much like what Andrew Miller's was last year, that if he gets over, what, 550 at-bats? Plate appearances. Plate appearances. So that's plate appearances. Then he's got another year with that $18 million on. And I guarantee you the Cardinals do not want to bring that back if this is the mindset that we have. So I just don't understand how you can sit here and say the obvious upgrade is at outfield. Yes, when you look at the bats that are available, but the need is infield because you have Tommy Edmond, Paul DeYoung, Matt Carpenter, Edmundo Sosa. And El Juris Montero, if you want to throw him in there. But I don't see either of those two other than Sosa getting a lot of playing time in terms of infield. I don't know what they're going to do if they don't add an infielder. Because to me, I think we now know Matt Carpenter is what he is at this point. He's not changing. He's not going to suddenly regain form of what he was in 2018. That's, That's unbelievably unlikely. And so as you look towards next season, 
I think they need somebody at third base to at the very minimum split time with Matt Carpenter. If that guy is Montero, so be it. I'm fine with that. Let's see what the young guy can do. Right. But if it's not going to be that, the answer cannot be Matt Carpenter starts 130 games for you at third base next year. He's just not that kind of a player at this point in his career. He's a platoon player. That's the best case scenario for at him. At best, he's that. Yeah. So we mentioned earlier today the White Sox have officially kind of started to strike when it comes to their um, decisions of who they're going to add to this roster for Tony La Russa. They earlier announced that Lance Lynn is going to be traded up to Chicago for the White Sox. Then they signed Adam Eaton to a one-year $7 million deal. It sounds like the market is starting to heat up because the Royals just signed first baseman Carlos Santana to a two-year deal worth $17 million. So that is now two position players today during these quote-unquote winter meetings that have officially signed. That have gotten more money than we expected them to get. Carlos Santana, again going back to the ESPN projections, was projected to get a one-year contract worth $6.5 million. He ended up getting a two-year deal worth 17, so an extra two million dollars on AAV, the average annual value, and instead of a one-year contract, it's a two-year deal for him at like 36 years old. Alex, I'm starting to think that we are looking at a market that is going to be more robust than any of us expected, and maybe this changes as time goes on. And there's guys that are you play this game of musical chairs, and there's somebody that is left without a seat, and that's where the value can be had. And it's going to be in February or so that those signings are happening. But man, based on what we saw from the pitching market early, and what we're seeing so far today, and it's only two deals, but so far today. The indications certainly seem to be that it's going to be more expensive to acquire this power, these position players that are everyday players for you than we were expecting, especially in a pandemic offseason. This is really interesting because it's not the way that offseasons usually go in baseball, right? Like these guys don't sign until George Springer has signed his contract. That's when you start to see these players make their signings. But this is the flip of winter meetings. Now you're getting these kind of minor signings that you're not expecting so much. But if you're also reading between the lines here, BK, maybe this is the tinfoil Ferrario talking. Oh, God. I know. I don't have the music for this yet. But look, it's the AL Central that has done it, right? It's the White Sox. It's the Royals that have spent right now and kind of overpaid. And if you look at the AL Central and the NL Central, those are the two divisions right now in the American League and National League that are up for grabs. I mean, the White Sox are pretty much the clear-cut favorite, but we were just talking in break. If the Royals go out and spend some money, you could at least make a run for that wild card spot and make it a little bit more difficult on the White Sox. So I wonder if these signings of of uh, Adam Eaton, Carlos Santana, I mean, even the some trade of the, for Lance Lynn. Yeah, the trade for Lance Lynn. I wonder if these are more desperation moves because they're trying to get ahead of the pack and upgrade the team and pay a little bit extra just to make sure that they get these players. It's interesting because there's a clear difference between the Central and the National League versus the American League, right? It's pretty clear to me that the White Sox are going for it. Mm -hmm. They're trying to win right now. That was indicated by them going with Tony La Russa as their manager, and it has continued in that direction today when they've announced the two decisions with Lance Lynn and Adam Eaton. The Royals... God bless them. I don't know if they're actually (laughs) going to do a lot of winning, but they're trying to win. They signed Mike Miner to a deal that was above market value. They're signing Carlos Santana to a deal that's probably a little above his market value. And they're quote unquote going for it, whatever that means for the Royals in the National League. 
Nobody's done that. No. The Reds are trading out assets. The Cubs have decided, you know what, Kyle Schwarber, good player. We're going to let you go. Right. The Cardinals did that with Colton Wong. The Brewers have said, eh, we are not they adding to this They traded away payroll. Corey Knievel over to the Dodgers. So it's that's the difference is there's no team in the National League Central doing what the uh, Royals and the White Sox are doing in the American League side of this. And I think that's that's the differentiating factor is that in the National League, you've got a lot of teams in the East, in the West that are going for it. And in the Central, nobody. In the American League, there are two teams right now that are showing that they would like to compete and would like to continue signing to make their team better for 2021. And there's not a whole lot of appetite for that. So now that side. we've seen the numbers for Eaton and Santana. Does this start to make you doubt the Cardinals upgrade with this free agent market? Because these markets are pretty uh, out of the reach of the Cardinals interest. It makes me think that it's going to take longer than we expected. Yeah. I think that if the Cardinals are going to make some sort of upgrades offensively, it's likely to happen closer to February or late January, something like that. Because right now it seems pretty clear the White Sox targeted Adam Eaton. That was the guy they wanted. The Royals targeted. There was a reason why they wanted to bring in Carlos Santana, not just a first baseman. They wanted Carlos Santana mm -hmm. for his on-base uh, percentage. I don't know that the Cardinals have a one specific guy. I think they're looking for a left-handed bat that can provide power. I don't know if it much matters what the name is on the back of the jersey. They just know the profile that they want. And so if there's four guys out there that fit that profile... They're fine with whoever that last guy is that's left without a seat at the table, and they'll go ahead and sign that guy late in the process because it's going to be cheaper than the other players. So I, I think that's going to be the route that they decide to choose here. It's not sexy, but it could probably be effective, and it ends up with them having a little bit more value out there. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Let's play a game of Bet It. Or forget it on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Let's play a game of bet it or forget it. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Let's start out with this one. Alex, bet it or forget it, the NHL will have a puck drop before the end of January. Uh, bet it, 100% bet it with this one. And I think now at least that we're hearing January 13th is a huge sign. Even if that gets pushed back a week because uh, there's an outbreak on a team or some type of holdup, you're going to see this before the end of January. The only holdup I would say is that Board of Governors approval where you need two thirds of the vote. But like Jeremy told us earlier in the show, which you can hear it on the podcast presented by I Care. How about that one for you? Oh, my God. I did it again. I did it again. I, I promise. promise. Wow. Close enough. OK, I'm going to stop doing that. But anyway, Jeremy basically said that that should be an easy <laughs> approval. I'm just going to stop trying to do that here. Uh, he said it should be an easy approval, so I'm going to bet it on that. I'm going to bet it as well. I think the NHL will be back in action by the end of January. I think, I mean, based on all of the projections of mid-January, at a minimum, I think they get it in before the start of February. So I'm, I'm definitely going to bet this. I think the biggest question is what the format's going to be. Are they going to be playing in their host cities? Mm -hmm. Is there going to be some sort of a quote-unquote hub city format where they're in for two weeks, they come back home for a week, then they go back to the hub for a couple of weeks to play like 10 games? 
That's what I'm most interested in at this point. Do you think that they're leaning one way or the other for Ario? I think they're leaning towards the home stadiums. I, I really do. Like, I haven't even heard them bring up the possibility of doing these, like, hub cities anymore. Like, now the reports are playing, like, baseball series against teams when you get into their stadium, so it's less travel. So I, I think the hope is, at least from the NHL, that by March, April, maybe May, hopefully by postseason, there's going to be fans in the stands. So start it off with empty stadiums. Better to forget it. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line from the 636. Bet it or forget it. The Cardinals will sign a player for more than $5 million this offseason. Forget it. I, I, I've... Well, I guess there's there's a caveat on this one. Unless it's Yachty or Molina, I'm forgetting it. Let, let's put the caveat in. Better to forget it. The Cardinals will sign a player from the outside, from outside yeah. of the organization that is more worth more than yeah. $5 million. I'm forgetting it because I know that the Cardinals can look at guys and say, we can get this person for cheap. Like, it's, it's not going to be these big names that we talk about. Like, even Jock Peterson, I think now that Adam Eaton has signed for $7 million and eight with the option, Jock Peterson, a World Series champion, is going to get more than that. So I'm forgetting this because if the Cardinals are making a signing, it's going to be a guy like Brad Miller, who they know. Oh, boy. I know. Millsy, he can come in for two, three million dollars and be effective for him. I'm going to bet it. I'm going to bet it. Um, I don't feel good about it, but the reason why I'm betting it is because I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of players out there that are under this market. Like $5 million seems to be what you're paying for any sort of middling back. If Adam Eaton is getting $7 million as a 31 year old outfielder that gets on base at a decent clip, but doesn't really hit for much power now. I think that's kind of the going rate. You're going to see something similar for Eddie Rosario, for Jock Peterson, for I think David Duvall is even going to be around this $5 million range now. I don't think they're going to find anybody that significantly upgrades the lineup for less than this. So I think they're going to be forced into signing somebody for at least $5 million. So I'll go ahead and bet it. Well, that we believe upgrades this offense. They'll believe that they'll upgrade the offense for less than $5 million. Touche. <laughs> 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for bet it or forget it. Better to forget it. Jordan Cairo will finish this upcoming season with at least 10 goals. Better to forget it. Jordan Cairo finishes with at least Ooh. 10 goals in this upcoming season. Oh, man. My gut saying to forget it, but I'm going to bet this one because of the position he's going to be in without Tarasenko. If this starts on January 13th, Tarasenko wasn't supposed to be reevaluated until February. You would imagine that's going to take you a little bit into February. You're looking at a little over a month. If you start on January 13th of Cairo being a top six forward, he's going to be playing with Shannon Schwartz. If not playing with O'Reilly and Perron at some point, if they move Sanford around, and even when those guys come back, you're going to see him in a top nine role because you really got to find out who he is. I don't know if he's going to be able to complete that, but I'm going to bet it because I'm I'm expecting it to happen, as BK likes to say. I believe, I believe it. Yeah, I think it's going to happen. Ten goals. I think it's going to be very close to ten goals, like ten or eleven. Am I totally out of line for looking at Zach Sanford's step? And they're different players. They're different styles. Mm -hmm. They're different players completely. But in terms of him taking that jump from year one to two and then from year two to three, I think we could see something similar this year from Jordan Cairo, where he looks more comfortable. He gets more ice time. And suddenly, instead of being a guy like early on, 
uh, Sanford was, where he finished with eight goals in 2018. Last year, he finished with 16. I don't think you're going to see 16 from Jordan Cairo, but I think you could get 10 to 12 in a 60 game season or something thereabouts. So I'm going to go ahead and bet it. I'm going on the positive side here. (laughs) And I do think you're right, Ferrario. One of the things that you have to look into here is what he's going to be playing with. There's just going to be so many better opportunities for him because that's the Sanford jump from year one to year two. Year one, he was on a fourth line. Year two, he's playing with Ryan O'Reilly and David Perron and putting up the points that he's been putting up. And then look at what he did this year, playing with those guys on a consistent level. Kairou has spent his career playing on the fourth line in the Blues organization. It's been rare that he's made it to the top. So if he's playing with a Shannon, a Schwartz and O'Reilly and a Perron, heck, I'll even throw it out there. If he's playing with a Robert Thomas, you're going to see more success for him. I don't know if it's going to be the jump that Sanford said, but yeah, this all resides on his role and who he plays with from Craig Berube. Huge year for him. We've talked about Jordan Bennington and what's at stake for him. It, it is every bit as big for Jordan Cairo and in some ways even bigger because yeah. if he's not the guy that they're hoping he can be, I don't know what his future is here in St. Louis. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for bet it or forget it from the 314. Guys, bet it or forget it. Mizzou, Illinois, and SLU will all make it to at least the second round of the NCAA tournament. I'll bet that, and I think they can make it to the Sweet 16, to be honest with you. I, and I, of course, we don't know what their matchups are going to look like, but trending in this direction, if I'm not mistaken, Konzo was just named the coach of the week in the mm-hmm. SEC. If you have that, if you have the the stacked roster that the Slew Billikens have, and if you have the star power that the Fighting Illini have, frankly, I see these teams being Sweet 16 teams and coming up with at least one type of upset among these three guys in the tournament. Yeah, I mean, SLU just proved that they can play with the big boys by beating LSU. Yeah. Uh, that, That was a huge win for them, and I expect them to have more of those as we move forward. I know what the schedule says right now. They're going to have an opportunity against Minnesota, maybe. Uh, We'll see. But the schedule right now is just names on a sheet of paper. It can be changed at any moment, and we all know that based on what we've seen already early in the year. I think SLU's going to get more chances to be able to go up against some big-time competition because they're going to be somebody that helps RPI. They're going to be in the nomenclature of college basketball, a quote-unquote quad one win if somebody else beats them. I think SLU is going to be really good this year. Uh, We already have seen that. Illinois is amazing, and Mizzou is better than I expected them to be. So They've proven it already, too. I'm going to bet it. I'm going to say all three will make it to the second round of the NCAA tournament, and I'm with you. I think that any of them could make a run not only to the Sweet 16, but it wouldn't be stunning to me if any of them made a run to the Elite Eight if yeah. they get the right draw. It's those, always about matchups, but if they get the right draw. Those slew matchups, BK, are going to be big when they play Richmond because Richmond is the team I think that everyone looks at in the A-10 and says they're the favorite to come away with it. If SLU can if slew can compete with those guys and beat those guys, that's where you're looking at a team that in the Elite Eight. Final one for you. Bet it or forget it. Washington, not New York, who we talk so much about over the weekend. Washington is going to be the team that ultimately wins the NFC East. Bet it. I mean, like, look at the teams that this Washington team has played against. I mean, of course, Pittsburgh, what you're coming off with. But I mean, since Alex Smith has returned, they've given themselves a legit quarterback. That defense still is top in the league in terms of pass defense, which put them up against a team like the Pittsburgh Steelers. Heck, put them up against a team like the Kansas City Chiefs. They're going to make it at least interesting now with a quarterback. The Giants came away with some pretty big 
mojo after that win over the Seahawks. You got to give credit where credit's due. But to me, that was also lightning in a bottle with Colt McCoy. And now when Daniel Jones comes back, maybe they can continue that success. Maybe the defense continues, but I don't see anybody doing what Washington's doing right now with their talent on both sides of the field. Let's go through the schedules real quick. So the Giants are five and seven, as are Washington, and both t- uh, New York currently has the tiebreaker because they beat Washington head to head twice. So if they both finish with the same record, it'll be New York, the Giants, that ultimately make the playoffs. The Giants have the Cardinals, Browns, at the Ravens, and Cowboys to finish out the season. I don't think the Giants are going to be able to beat the Browns. I wouldn't expect them to beat the Ravens on the road, but we'll see. Cardinals are a toss-up right now, and the Cowboys, I would think that they would win. So two and two Two at best, probably one and three. We'll see. Washington's schedule at the 49ers, which is in Arizona. It's going to be tough. Seahawks at home. That's going to be tough. Panthers and then at the Eagles in the final week of the season. Two and two, very realistic there. Maybe possible for three and one if they can beat the 49ers, but that's going to be a tough game there as well. This is going to come down to the final week. I'm going to go ahead and forget it. I will take the Giants just because they currently have the tiebreaker, and I think both teams end up at seven and nine, six and ten. I'll tell you the one to be, be watchful of is that Seahawks game. I mean, we just saw the Giants do it, and Washington has a better secondary defense than what the Giants do. Yep. And, I mean, you take that away from Seattle, Washington has a pretty damn good de- offense when things are clicking for them. I mean, I wouldn't – it would be – it would surprise the hell out of me, but I wonder if they could go 4-0 in those last four games. He's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next – Are you going to judge the Cardinals based on what they do in 2021? Because yesterday we talked with Jesse Rogers and there's at least one fan base in the NL Central that is not going to do that for their general manager. We'll talk about that coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. I'd almost do the mini rebuild retool now anyway. Who knows what next season is going to look like. Uh, you, you can you can slide by in 21. People are worried about their jobs, looking elsewhere. Like no one's holding Jed Hoyer, Jed Hoyer's feet to the fire. His first year as president during a pandemic. If the Cubs don't win the World Series, that that's my opinion. That was Jesse Rogers with us yesterday of ESPN.com. If you missed any of that interview, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app. It's all presented by I Promise. So Jesse Rogers says nobody's going to judge. What the car or what the Cubs do this upcoming year, because Jed Hoyer's in his first year as the president of baseball operations and everybody understands this is a team that's about to go through a time of transition. I wanted to ask you guys, six, five, seven, eight, oh, the air comfort service text line. Do we have that same feeling about the Cardinals? Because obviously John Mosaylock is in a very different situation. He's been here for a decade now. Meanwhile, Jed Hoyer is in year one running the Cubs. Uh, The Cubs are very clearly going into the downturn of their cycle. The Cardinals sell it to their fan base very clearly that they're going to be in 90 wins, at least in contention every single season. So are the Cardinals going to be judged on wins and losses this year? Are they going to be judged based on what they do in the offseason going into the 2022 season. How are we viewing right now, Alex, what a successful 2021 looks like for the Cardinals? Boy, I don't think he should be judged off of this upcoming season because of everything we've been told. But I think from a fan's perspective, he's going to be judged by this. I think a lot of people are going to be uh, calling for John Mosaylock's head if they don't, one, do anything this offseason, two, 
don't compete in the NL Central. That has already been labeled the poo-poo division in <laughs> itself, as we were talking with C. Trent Rosencrantz. Uh, you know, look, uh, Jed Hoyer is... I mean, he's kind of in the same situation, too, though. Like, I know he hasn't been there, but he's been working underneath Theo Epstein. So it's kind of like he's the right-hand man. He's the Michael Gersh to John Mosellock. So Jed Hoyer's, although you can't judge him because of what's happening and going into this with the financial ramifications, I think the same thing should be said about John Mosellock because if they gave him money in a hypothetical world, would he spend it? Probably not. Probably not on what you guys would think he would spend it on, but... You talking about Mo? Yeah. Oh, I think he would. I think if Mo was told tomorrow, hey, instead of you think he'd go get George Springer. If they told John Mosellock tomorrow, hey, you have twenty million dollars to play with this year to be able to go sign a big time bat, I think he would. I I don't think Mo is apprehensive of signing that type of a player. I now would he sign somebody to a ten year deal? Like would he would he right now trade for Francisco Lindor and then give him the contracts that we talk so much about? Right. No, I don't think he would do that. Um, but when we're talking about these guys that are in the Dexter Fowler range for free agency, yeah, I, I think he would do that if he had that kind of money available to him. But I don't think that money's available to him. Right, and that's why I think you can't judge the guy off of it because he just doesn't have the finances now. 2021 off season where fans are back and you have the money to spend and all of this money comes off the book and you don't spend that. That's when I think you start to really judge him from how he's running the organization. That's where I land on this. I think my I'm going to have a lot of hindsight is 2020 on this. And I know that's a bad thing to say up front, but it's it's just kind of how I view it of if they're selling us something this upcoming season, that it is a true transition year and it's about getting that 60 million dollars off of the book. So that way they can go make a run at some big time free agents next year. Well, then there better be something at the end of that, right? If you buy a product that is basically a service, right? You get us, you go out to a restaurant right now and you buy a $500 gift card because you want to help out that local restaurant, right? And then that restaurant says, you know what? Actually, once we come back into business, those are not applicable. You can't use that here. Well, you'd be like, what What in the world? I was sold a bag of goods, right? Right. That's that's not what I purchased. I purchased this. That way I can use it whenever we can go back out into the world again. That's kind of what it would be if the Cardinals are selling us right now. Hey, wait until after this season. 2021 is going to be a little tough for us. We know there are there are things that were beyond our control and we just we need to get our books straight. But 2022 will be a better season and we'll be back to real contention at that point. Well, you can't sell me that and then kick the can down the road again. Eventually, we just look like we're in Charlie Brown and the football's getting <laughs> pulled away from us each and every time. Right. Lucy's pulling the football away. And I'm done with it. I'm done with going through the process and going through the motion of trying to kick the football and it gets pulled away every single time. So I'm more than happy to listen to what they're selling right now. But if it ends up with the same thing next offseason that we're all expecting now, that's when I think it is totally fair and reasonable to judge the Cardinals for what they did or what the lack of what they did this offseason. Well, on the text line, Air Comfort Service, text line 65780 just said, too, that, you know, fans aren't going to judge this organization for the season, basically because they're used to them being mediocre. And I think that's the other side of this one as well, that the Cardinals have done the same thing over and over and over, where some offseasons they're willing to spend, some offseasons they're willing to not spend, but they've never gone for it. And I think now you're kind of in that, 
purgatory where you don't really need to go for it. It's like what we talked about with C. Trent, right? Like it's the same division. You toss all of the names in the hat and you could pull one out that could win the division and you could pull one out that could fall into fourth place in the division. And I think that's where the fans hold the feet so close to the fire because it's the same thing every single season. So I did want to ask this. And we'll get into the crossover with the fast lane here in just a little bit. But I was reading Derek Gould's chat yesterday, and he brought up what I think is a kind of intriguing potential trade. Now, I'm not a big fan of this player, but it would, I think, be interesting for the Cardinals to do that. Derek Gould said there's been a long simmering notion outside of the organization that the Cardinals in Boston line up for a trade that includes Andrew Penitendi. The question becomes if Benetendi can find the hitter that he was several several years ago and why his production has declined with the Red Sox. Now, again, I'm not a huge fan of Andrew Benetendi. I think there are better options on the free agent market than going out and trading for him. That being said, this is also the team, the Red Sox, that have been rumored, kind of connected in a roundabout way, not actually truly officially like reported that they're interested in, but connected to Carlos Martinez. If I told you today the Cardinals could trade Carlos Martinez for Andrew Benintendi, and that's their outfield acquisition to be able to upgrade the offense while also removing that money, Carlos Martinez's $12 million salary from the books, would you like that deal? Would that make sense to you for the Cardinals? Hell yeah. Where do I sign? Like, where do I sign right now? He's an upgrade over Tyler O'Neill. I mean, look, I know his seasons haven't been great, but I mean, he still provides you a better on base percentage provide you better defense and he provides you a little bit more upside on the offensive side as well. So this is a guy that, you know, and if he's got options, correct? Like this is a guy who's not making a ton of money. He's got options and you're offsetting all of this money for Carlos Martinez. My one question would be, does he fit with what you need? And the answer to that question is, yeah, he crushes right-handed pitching. He has an 821 OPS against righties. So you could just do a true platoon, kind of like what we've been talking about with Jock Peterson. Yeah. He fits what we're talking about with the mold there of you play him against righties. You play Harrison Bader against lefties. You use two players to become one good outfielder. Again, I'm not a huge fan of the player. I don't think Andrew Benatendi is the cure all to what plagues the Cardinals right now. But if it means you could trade Carlos and get rid of that salary. And I think it's like a $6 million difference between Mm -hmm. the two. So you save $6 million in this. And then maybe you use that. So you, that $6 million to go sign your guy, Jonathan scope. Mm -hmm. So now suddenly instead of Carlos, I have Andrew Benatendi in the outfield and Jonathan scope in the infield. Now I'm feeling a lot better about what the Cardinals look like next year from the 573 BK. Did you know Andrew Benintendi lives in St. Louis? I do. And that's why this has been speculated for so long. Big blues fan. It's, it's one of the reasons why so many people connect him with the Cardinals and why people think that he would be a good fit here in St. Louis, because if he ends up being good, he would likely stay here for the long term. So that's something that I would be interested in. I don't know how much interest the Boston Red Sox would have in that deal especially taking on Carlos Martinez's contract for one season which yes it's only one season but you're taking on a guy who's been injured you don't know if he could be there and you're also taking on someone who has been in the past a problem for organizations but if you're Boston where are you going you didn't bring back Jackie Bradley Jr. you traded away Mookie Betts you really don't have much going for you right now Maybe you look at this as an offset of somebody that you had control over and you get rid of a contract that 
in all intended purposes, is a one-year offset for Carlos Martinez. Yeah, it'd be interesting. It'd I'd be sign interesting it right now, at. though. And by the way, Benintendi is on the last year of his two-year $10 million deal, so um, he would be a free agent, so I he's believe, gone. after... No, there's one more year left on it after this upcoming season. So, so you get um, two years of $10 million, which is much better than... The 18 that you're paying Carlos, and on top of it, you get a better outfielder. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We'll cross things over with the fast lane coming up next. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Thrilled to cross things over with the fast lane. Jamie Rivers in hey! studio. Yeah! What's up there, fellas? How we doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. You know what? I, I've been wanting to talk to you guys about this. I was going to text it to you, but I told myself as I was driving, first of all, don't text and drive. I Second of all, I said, save it. The rule of, of radio. Save it, right? So I heard your junk drawer today, mm-hmm. and Max Gilliam. Yeah. Okay, I saw that episode. Of course <laughs> you did. <laughs> <laughs> so when you saw this news, you were like, wait a second, I saw this like six weeks ago. Forever ago. And it really, okay, so the headlines, quite honestly, they paint a better picture than what it really was. And what I'm saying is they talk about, oh, they ate sushi off a nude model and all this yeah. stuff. Sounds fun. Like, sign me up. Sounds like a Jamie Rivers weekend. Sounds good to me. Sounds like a story that I would have heard from Jamie, Jamie Rivers. Rivers in recent weeks. It's <laughs> a good point. Not yet. However, <laughs> if I was there, absolutely. And But they forget to mention they had these massive lily pads covering up all the regions that yeah. one would like to have covered up if you were that said model. I mean, right? it was on Bravo. We're not talking about an HBO show here. It, yeah, it wasn't like Cinemax here. Were chopsticks involved too? Because maybe was he picking them up with the chopsticks off of the, or was he going straight they mouth to nude? Yeah. Okay. They, no, no, it wasn't mouth. They went hands. They, there oh, was nobody okay. that went for the mouth sushi. On, so this is different me. than belly button shots, people. It is a little bit different, although there may have been some sake later on that may have in been in the belly button. But the guests were doing it to each other. It got wild. There's no doubt about it, but not with the model. So I, I saw that episode and uh, yeah, I didn't think much of it. And now he comes out with this big apology. What a ridiculous yeah. apology. Why are we apologizing? Come on. You and Elvie, you're, you're in Las Vegas. Like, what did you expect <laughs> when you that. decided to have a football team in Vegas? In Vegas. And, and you're not even in Vegas when it happened. You're out in the Mediterranean <laughs> on a mega yacht that somebody's parents paid like 300 grand for this thing. And producers are telling you to do things on television. I would imagine they knew that the quarterback was on this show. I, like I, I well, they I pick it think. right. Like Johnny Damon has been on twice when he's booked cruises. Like they certainly, it's good for business if you have somebody somewhat recognizable that gets on your boat for this charter and you're filming. And yeah, you know, and, and he's not an idiot over there. Bravo. Was he apologizing more on the college side, or was he apologizing more for the stock in the NFL? Oh, I don't know if he's even an NFL prospect. Like, or I, is he apologizing because he had a girlfriend? Oh, oh, that, that's a good question. I didn't even think know. of that one. Never know. So um, on to the stuff that really does matter. Wait, uh, what? I, I think I'm getting shot in the ass today or this week at some point. I didn't even agree to be a part of the Fastlane Rizzuto Show Challenge. First of all, you were signed as a free agent. You don't have to be contacted for that. I feel okay? like are you sure about that? Yeah, we just, I, I don't think know. you have to agree to that. Listen, that's how it happened to me, too. So I figured <laughs> that that's just Russia. how they do things around here. That was Russia. Russia, and I really didn't have a say in that. But to, to, put, to explain it here, 
We do the Pick'em Challenge against the Rizzuto Show, Fastlane versus the Rizzuto Show. Mm-hmm. We had to pick up a free agent for obvious reasons. We lost a member of the Fastlane. And so BK, in his first week of incredible football knowledge, finished last. So therefore, he gets shot in the buttocks. And I'm not happy about it, and here's why. <laughs> because I thought that you would have time before the 3 o'clock games to switch picks for the 3 o'clock games. And I wanted to go with the Rams over the Cardinals, but I was unaware because previously my picks weren't as important as they are now. I was unaware that the, the picks lock mm-hmm. for all of them at noon on Sunday. The, the remainder of the games, regardless of yes. what time they were on, lock at noon on Sunday. I didn't know this. <laughs> and so I ended up picking the Cardinals against the Rams. I didn't want to pick the Cardinals against the Rams. And now I'm going to get shot in the ass as a result. I'd be happier than a dog with two dinghies if uh, you're asking me. And that we will be as I we feel. pull the trigger. <laughs> no worries, I will be too, just watching. But <laughs> you know what, though? I feel, though, honestly, for someone like you and maybe someone like Stalter, I think that rule, the lockout at noon, might actually be your best friend. No, that's Watching true. you guys flip-flop, flippity-flop. Especially flop. Stalter. <laughs> Like, come on, <laughs> protecting you from yourself. I'm not thrilled about it. I'm going to say that much. I'm, I've got to reconsider whether or not I'm agreeing to this moving forward. Uh, Jamie, what's coming up today on the Fast Lane, man? Well, we're going to talk some NHL, right? Looks like we've got some good news on the horizon for the NHL and them getting started. We're certainly going to dive back into the Cardinals, and certain things are happening around MLB that kind of make us wonder where are the Cardinals and all this, and why has Wayno and Yachty, specifically Wayno, why has he not been actually dealing with offers yet feels like he hasn't had anything which is kind of peculiar and we're going to have some fun along the way too Uh, always a good time jim bowden former mlb general manager just tweeted out early returns of mlb free agent market suggests that average major league players are being valued by clubs this offseason in the six to nine million dollar range per season well there goes the cardinals hopes of signing somebody yeah no chance out Get comfortable with what you see, folks. Back to so. Jonathan Scope and Brad Miller, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Those hey. guys are average major leaguers. Hey, <laughs> you know who's an average major, major leaguer that's a free agent that you can get cheap? Ron Hell Ravello. Okay, well, there is that. Join in on the holiday spirit by contributing to Character and Smallman's 12 Days of T-Shirts fundraiser for the Little Bit Foundation. Donate at least $25 online between now and December 14th, and you will receive a complimentary 101 ESPN T-Shirt as a gift for your donations. 12 days to donate. 12 days to score that free 101 ESPN t-shirt. Your $25 donation is going to help the Little Bit Foundation provide a backpack of school supplies to a local student in need. Huge thanks to our presenting sponsor, Massage Lux, for making it all possible. For Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll be back tomorrow at 11. The Fast Lane coming up next right here on 101 ESPN. Mm. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, powered by I Promise.